On this episode of NC Raw, we welcome Gary and Yoakum to the podcast. Garen is the case manager for the Law Enforcement Assisted Diversion Program in Waynesville, North Carolina. And she also works for the North Carolina Harm Reduction Coalition doing uh, phenomenal work. It was a great conversation. The longest podcast that we've ever done. She came in a little bit nervous. Um kind of questioning whether she was going to be able to to like sit down and talk with us and it ended up being the longest show we've, we've done so it was a phenomenal conversation we enjoyed talking with her and look forward to both working with her in the future and also having her back on to keep us up to date as to how the lead program is working out out in Haywood we also want to invite you guys out to a couple of upcoming events that NC Raw and Res Hope have scheduled. Uh, we want to start doing like more regular kind of like social events, places for us to gather and get together, hang out. Uh, the first is taking place this coming Saturday, December 1st at Sweet Freeze Frozen Yogurt in Cherokee. Res Hope and NC Raw, we're going to be hosting um, UFC Fight Night. We're just going to be showing the fight, hanging out, having some food, and kicking it for the evening. So we would like to invite anybody and everybody out to uh, come kick it with us. The next event is December 24th, New Year's Eve. Shit, Christmas Eve. We are hosting a Christmas party podcast. Um same deal we want to just invite anybody to come participate in the podcast have a good meal hang out listen to some christmas music drink some peppermint tea maybe some eggnog and uh ring in the holiday together so everybody's invited to that come on out and hang with us all the information is available on our facebook page nc raw podcast on facebook and with that being said, let's give it up. Give some love to Gary and Yoakum. Pew, pew, pew. I'm just an individual. Living the miracle, standing divisible, connected to God and my physical essence of my spiritual presence is visible. Totally leaving you unaware of my mental subliminal. Used to be a criminal, living so minimal. But things have changed in my life is going through different intervals. Finding that balance is significantly difficult. Timing is everything, so my timing is critical. Rhyming is literal, the unforgettable. It's why you stand before you impeccably so presentable. I give respect to you, know that I am respectable. I've always wanted acceptance, is that acceptable? I give the Rival expected to be exceptional, and I'm a grown man, handle business like a professional. I am incredible, Leo conventional, and you stopping me from chasing my dreams is unprofessional. The opinions expressed in this podcast are the views of the NCR team and the individuals interviewed. We do not consider ourselves to be mental health professionals. Our mission is to explore the various pathways to recovery and to give a voice to those affected by or involved in the care of substance use disorders. 
Some content may be mature for younger audiences. Viewer discretion is advised. Ready, set, go. We're live, you guys. Hello, We're live. Hey, man. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for including me. Yeah, it's been a while, huh? (laughs) Yeah. Welcome to NC Raw, Caleb McCoy. Huh? Uh, Yeah. Hello, Gary and Yoko. <laughs> Hello, Steve Steen. It's been a little bit of a chaotic evening, but we're going to pull the nose up on this thing and get it together. I like that. Yeah. Where'd you get that expression? Evening. I have no idea why. That's good. I don't know. It's pretty good. It's a, it must be a Florida thing. Yeah. A white must trash. be a Radio Rob thing. <laughs> Radio Rob, White Trash Florida thing, for sure. <laughs> um, so, Gary and Yoko, thank you. Like, the way that we came together was kind of interesting. You were on, I shared with you, um, you were on my radar, right? When I first heard of the LEAD program being launched in Waynesville, I was like, I read the news story, thinking the Mountaineer. I was like, I have to get her on the podcast. I was like, I got I to gotta get her on the podcast. And I did like some some digging online. I did a little digging and I couldn't find an email address. I couldn't find a contact. I couldn't find a way to get a hold of her. And um, some time passed. I just kind of like put it off to the side. And a couple weeks ago, I hit up Lori Clancy. The, the, it, it came back to me a couple weeks ago. And I was like, okay, I need to, I need to get a hold of Gary Ann about, about the lead program. So I hit up Lori Clancy and she was like, um, she immediately responded and <clears throat> shot me Gary Ann's email address. However, in that email, she was like, oh, by the way, Gary Ann's going to be at the summit, the regional summit that we attended a couple weeks ago. She's going to be there. And so I happened to, not only did I happen to bump into her, but she just happened to like sit at my table. And so we were able to kind of like get that conversation started. Just a little bit of hesitancy <laughs> out, of, out of her at the initial onset of this conversation, but after the five or six hours of us sitting at that table, she agreed to come on into Raw and talk with us. And it's nothing personal <laughs> except my own personal issues. Yeah. Just being shy. And I, I want to share a quick story. Not wanting to talk about myself. And <laughs> yeah, so, but I'm honored to be here. So thank you. For tracking me down. At this point in my <laughs> process of recovery, I don't take anything personal, man. You can't. I know. You right? <laughs> Not you really at all. can't. The first time I met her over there at the... Uh, at the rally. The rally. You remember she talked to us, right? <laughs> so I went up yeah. to her, right? And I was like, well, I've messaged you on Facebook. She's like, I don't have Facebook. Yeah, like, oh. I remember that. <laughs> Just I, kidding, right? <laughs> you, message, so what you're saying is you're messaging some random person. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know how I got that mixed up, Gary and Yoakum. I mean, it's not <laughs> I'm the one and see. only. I don't know. Maybe there's some impersonator out there. No. Dude, these days, there's no telling, man. Hey, no that's funny you say that because there's a girl. She's getting ready to be the second Caitlin Hope Ledford in Cherokee. That's no joke, but anyways. <laughs> that, is that is why. Is that literally. <laughs> literally, yeah. In, that is, is that intentional? You can't just tease Spelled me. Spelled exactly the same way, Is that way intentional, too. or is it like, what, what's going on here? No. I, Give um, the back story real quick. You can't she, tease me with something like that. Not. How did we meet her? Just through Facebook and stuff? Mm-hmm. She follows us and whatnot, and then uh, she come through the line at work one day, and I seen her credit card thing, and it spelled. I knew her name was Caitlin Sides. And her name was spelled exactly like mine. And that's what drew me. I seen it because it's very, you know, 
That's not common. Not for, traditional. Right. It's not a traditional way to spell Caitlin. And then I seen out beside it, it said Caitlin H. And she's dating my cousin, Calvin Ledford. And I was like, if you guys get married, we're going to have the same exact initials. And then as she was getting ready to leave, I said, oh, yeah, by the way, what's your middle name? No way. And she said Hope. And I was like, <laughs> blew my mind. I was like, what? Uh, she came and then me that, this <laughs> past weekend, he proposed to her. So they're going to get married. Who's, so she's going to be a Ledford. Who's That's getting, wild. Who's getting married first? I don't know. You're I gonna, haven't Because you're going to be a McCoy. It's the, re- it's the, the waiting race. No. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> oh, yeah. Then her name will change. So. Race to the so, like, you're, gonna, you're essentially passing the torch to her. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm going to tell her she better start running. <laughs> yeah. You're becoming Hold a McCoy. Hold up the name. <laughs> I'm sure that this conversation is something that um, isn't uh, foreign to the reservation. These names changing, things like that. Like, hmm. uh, Ledford's becoming McCoy. Right. These people come. Well, we're, we're actually keen on it's weird. Like, how does that, that happen? Marriage. <laughs> Hold yeah. on. Yeah, no, like, no, not like, not like. <laughs> <laughs> nothing like. Nothing like putting you on the spot <laughs> now. So, Gary and Yoko. <laughs> Tell us about, let's introduce you. Tell us about what you do. Um, Tell us about why I was interested in having you on this podcast. Like what, what is it that you do on a daily basis? What is your job? What is your title? Give us a little introduction. So I am a case manager and I'm employed by the North Carolina Harm Reduction Coalition. Awesome organization, yes. doing fabulous work all all across the state. And it is an honor to work for them. And we are in partnership with the Waynesville Police Department, the um, assistant district attorneys, well, actually the district attorney had to approve of our program and our eligibility and the charge diversions um, for which we will um forego arrest. We are in partnership with Meridian Behavioral Health and Appalachian Community Services at the Balsam Center, and then some folks over on Russ Avenue in Waynesville. And so essentially LEAD is an acronym for Law Enforcement Assisted Diversion, and it is a pre-arrest diversion program where at the point of probable cause for an arrest, a law enforcement officer at his or her, their discretion, has an opportunity to divert a person from the criminal justice system from arrest if they come to discover that the person has some unmet behavioral health needs that are likely driving the criminal behavior. So they do a warm handoff if it's between Monday through Friday, or if it's Monday through Friday between the hours of 9 and 5, Um, that person will um, come to me. Or if I'm in a meeting or working with another participant and I'm not able to meet with that person immediately, then Meridian Behavioral Health Services, they will step in and help out and do a screening and assess for safety and crisis, that sort of thing. And then on nights and weekends, the Balsam Center has agreed to um, accept the warm handoff there. So... That's the biggest piece of the program. And there's also a social referral that officers can make. 
And so right now we've had nine referrals so far, and eight of those have been social referrals. So this is a very clear indication that officers know their community. So in Waynesville, you know, when they're out there um, patrolling on their shift and they see some familiar faces and they get to know some of the uh, ways and means of individuals and their whereabouts, and if they start to form a relationship with that person and they learn some things about that person and they think that that person needs some help, they can uh, make a referral, and there doesn't have to be a criminal charge that's being um, diverted okay. at that point. And living where we live, that's most likely a very common event that takes place where we just we get to know people right you yes. don't walk in the grocery store you recognize your neighbors you recognize your folks they build relationships with each other yes. um and so in the interest of prevention that's where that piece comes in and the community can also make social referrals can so they now yes okay so if there's somebody out there in the community who knows someone who's struggling and Either they are at risk of getting involved in the justice system or they have a history of cycling in and out of that system. They can call Detective Paige Shell or Lieutenant Tyler Trantham, and I'll just go ahead and say the phone number, 828-456-5363, and they can make the referral. Yeah. Of course, that community member, as well as the law enforcement officer, would want to ensure that there's no coercion involved and that the person is open to getting some supportive um, and intensive case management. How long has LEAD been up and running? And can you, you have any data, like how effective it's been? Like I don't have a lot of data yet. And um, we launched in mid-June. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it takes a lot of time to to launch a program like this and to ensure that there's officer buy-in, to ensure there's community buy-in, to ensure that potential participants How's that been going, have bought the in. I mean, I think we're off to a great start. And quite frankly, I don't think that we need to have anybody want to try to come and evaluate the program in a year's time or six months time as right. you know yeah. I think it it's going to take a lot of time and as a firm believer that change is not an event it is a process right I Just, want to ensure that we are actually giving folks an opportunity to make some changes mm -hmm. um, so getting back to your question with buy-in I have um, my office is currently at the Waynesville Police Department and that's given me an opportunity to get to know a lot of the officers. I've done four ride-alongs. And those ride-alongs are really important because it helps me to understand their work. And it helps me to get to know them as human beings, as professionals. We generally go out and eat a meal at some point during the ride-along. And I'm also a firm believer in breaking bread with people. And that's a beautiful way to build relationships and trust and I've been really prioritizing that. And it takes a long time to build relationships and trust. Um, but I feel like that, you know, we're making that headway. And, I mean, I'm in there every day. And 
I know about people's children, and I know how people are spending their holidays, and I know what music um, folks are listening to. I feel like music is not, is another like universal language where you can connect with people, mm-hmm. and so getting to know officers um, in a more personal way. And I've been fortunate to be able to um, go to several different events with uh, Detective Shell. She's been great at inviting me to accompany her. Um, there was a big national night out in Canton, and I got to meet law enforcement officers from all over the county, emergency medical service providers from all over the county. And just to have that presence that this partnership is has been forged and that it's meaningful is really important. And uh, Paige has invited me to a lot of different community collaborative meetings. And then last month I traveled with Chief Hollingshead and Paige across the state to Raleigh to a diversion summit. And there were 80 some different professionals. Several of them were law enforcement officers in the room. And we talked about different programs throughout the state, diversion programs. And so with, so this is getting lengthy, but that's you know, a lot of the buy-in around law enforcement. With the community buy-in, I have since, let's see, I think I, I started April 2nd was my first day on the job. And I was doing some training, and I was going to other parts of the state um, to get to know my colleagues at NCHRC, and then didn't actually arrive in Waynesville to start working there and get my office set up until later in the month. But I was actually traveling to Waynesville about mid-April, reaching out to uh, Pathway Center, the Open Door, Haywood Christian Ministries, just any provider in the community who I envisioned being a critical part, a key stakeholder in the success of this program. And so really just I have a little bit of background in doing some community organizing and, and how to build build that capacity and build that buy-in. So I used some of that skill set and just started cold calling people. And um, I am a member of the Substance Use Prevention Alliance and Haywood Healthy Haywood. Both of those operate out of the Haywood County Health Department. And I meet with a multitude of stakeholders from across the county and across systems. And we're coming together once a month to talk about the issues that are so complex um, that folks are facing in Haywood County and arguably across the nation. Um, And then I'm a part of another community collaborative group and we focus on economic issues, issues around poverty and employment and housing and transportation. So I've been really fortunate to kind of get in where I fit in in Haywood County. (laughs) And it's been easy. I mean, I've just been met with so much hospitality and warmth and just people really ready to get in front of the issues that um, folks are facing. And then with participant buy-in, you know, that can be a little tricky because um, there's lots of folks who um, have have a history of, of, of trauma, of stress around law enforcement and their involvement in the criminal justice system. And my role has a few times been conflated with law enforcement. And part of that is, you know, I'm operating out of the PD. Eventually I'll be operating out of Meridian. There's some kind of kinks getting worked out in the, in the lease and the insurance and all that. Um, 
we have some liability insurance I guess we need to get. I'm like, well, this ain't the first time I've been called a liability. <laughs> don't don't no, worry. There's my, there's my little silly joke. but Don't no, worry. So we'll get there tonight. Don't worry. So we're working those things out, but I mean that in no way to say that I'm ungrateful or anything. I've been so grateful for the opportunity to operate out of the mm-hmm. PD, and it's just I really believe that it's been critical to um, the strength of this program and the sustainability of it. But I just work you know, on an individual basis to really try to build that trust and that connection with folks. And, um, you know, as you guys know, I was nervous to come on here. My gift is, I think one of my gifts is just one-on-one connection with people and being able to relate and identify with people and, um, understand where folks are coming from and, and then to deliver on things. You know, if I say I'm going to do something, I'm going to do everything in my power to get it done if I say I'm going to be somewhere to meet someone, I'm going to be there to meet them and to approach people in an unconditional way and in a positive regard and to not sit in a place of judgment of anybody's life. I mean, I'm not here to put anyone's life on trial and I'm just here to say, what can I do to be a support person, excuse me, in your life? And I hope that that resonates with people and that no matter how role, how close my role is to law enforcement officers, that they see that as a strength and as an opportunity to make changes in their life, not as a hindrance or not as a barrier to, to getting some access to resources. So it'll take a little time, I'm sure. And I've got a couple of folks who've just said, oh, I don't want to be a part of LEAD because, you know, law enforcement, and then they we talk on the phone all the time. I'm like helping this one woman get housing, and that's the beauty of, of the work I'm doing is that even if they don't want to be a part of LEAD, I can still provide harm reduction services, and I can still be a support person in their lives. And I love that flexibility because I don't have to say no to anyone or deny services or help or support to anyone, so that feels really good. You know, in these uh, um, long answer, in these <laughs> in these recovery circles, you hear like a lot of these these catchwords. You know, these buzzwords, and one of them, um, one thing that you hear is meeting people where they're at. Everybody mm-hmm. tends to gravitate towards that, mm-hmm. and you know, I'm a realist, <coughs> man, and you know, I, I tend to do things in a non traditional way, but looking at the way that many of these organizations who claim to be doing that conduct business, they're not actually doing that. Whereas what you are doing is you are actually meeting people where they are at. You are knocking on doors. You're going into wherever mm-hmm. and doing exactly what you just said and offering harm reduction services or offering just care and love and anything that you can possibly do that's like the beauty of your job is like that that gives you that ability to um to do that and not many organizations can do that Mm -hmm. right now you know hopefully that will change in the in the near future through the work that you guys are doing and through the work that um the harm reduction coalition is doing and many others the law enforcement diversion is not a new concept, so to speak. However, you guys are the first rural 
community to house a law, law enforcement diversion program. How did that come to life in Waynesville? And I'm very proud of that. Yeah. So I want to say one thing before I answer that question, just to expand on meeting people where they're at. I want to take that a step further and say that I accept people where they're at. So I'm going to meet them where they're at geographically, meet them where they're at in their, wherever they're at in their relationship to substances and or recovery, um, and then just accept them for wherever they're at. Um, so in answer to your question, um, there are a lot of different diversion programs, and they're starting to rename them as deflection. So I'm trying to adapt to this word change, but either way, the very first one that came to my knowledge that actually is <coughs> under the LEAD brand, the very first LEAD program, um, came out of Seattle mm -hmm. in 2011. And I'm sure you guys probably followed some of that work, you know, after years of community um, outrage, quite frankly, and... Um, at the ways in which drug laws were being enforced. And then there were also a lot of law enforcement officers and the district attorney who just found themselves very frustrated with uh, the ways in which drug policy was being enforced. They came together, and it was an unlikely team of people coming together, um, historically unlikely, and they developed lead, and then after a few years... Um, after its launch, it was replicated in Santa Fe, and then <coughs> Albany, New York, is my understanding, they were the first on the East Coast to get a lead program. And then probably right around the time that Albany had launched, there's a program in Nashville, North Carolina, under Chief Tom Bashore, and it's called the HOPE Initiative, and that's essentially where somebody can enter the police department no matter what substances and or paraphernalia they may have on them, turn in their substances and or paraphernalia and ask for help. No questions will be asked. And law enforcement officers will help get them connected to treatment. So that was launched in How, Nashville. Was that that's, effective? that's what I was going <laughs> to say. How many people actually walked up in there and was like, okay, you I'm done. Here you go. Mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, and I hate to say it like that. You know, and I had the honor of sitting next to him in Raleigh last month on a panel. And he's just, he's an incredible guy, total, total leader. And um, I forget what he said, but I want to say within a matter of days, he got his first phone call. Oh, and I so think cool. that the first one, he went out to the home. And then eventually, and I believe that they will Still do that as well. So you can call as well. Right. And I hope I'm not misspeaking on the kind of fundamentals of that program, but that's pretty much what my tiny brain remembers mm -hmm. <laughs> from last month. But so that was, in my understanding, that was the first kind of diversion program in this state where law enforcement officers were connecting people to services and resources. And um, then... Eventually, the state had allocated some money for a pilot program in Fayetteville. And all the while, I've been watching LEAD just get replicated in all these jurisdictions across the country. And I really wanted to be a part of a program so this like was that. On, we'll get into like a little bit of your story, but this was on your radar um, while all this was taking place. Yes, it was on my radar. And I remember seeing a posting for a position in Fayetteville, and I thought, 
oh no, <laughs> you're not going to leave Asheville. <laughs> no offense to Fayetteville, but it just wasn't really where I saw, you know, my trajectory in my life going. Cause and I'll get into this later, but I want land, I want farmland. And so I'm like, <laughs> I don't think I'm going to have that in Fayetteville, North Carolina. <laughs> so I just kept hoping that a program closer to my current home would, um, be developed. And I think right around that time, the state had identified um, a more urban community like Fayetteville in a rural community like Waynesville. And there was leadership in both of those law enforcement agencies. And I don't know if anyone here at the table knows Chief Bill Hollingshead, but that man is amazing. <laughs> he is one of my heroes. Mm -hmm. And it's such an honor to work with him, to have gotten to know him, and he's been a leader across the state, and he sits on, gosh, that man's bio, it's off the charts. He's just yeah. got so many different things that he, all these committees he chairs and all these things, and so I think the state was recognizing his leadership as well as Lars Paul's, I think that's his name, the guy out in Fayetteville, the law enforcement officer out there. I think he's a captain. Both of those men exhibited all this leadership, and so then I think they wanted to try to pilot a program in an urban and in a rural community. And then Detective Paige Shell, who, let me shout out to her, is also an amazing woman and leader. She had um, learned about the LEAD program and really was interested in it and wanted to be kind of the key coordinator at the department to headed up, if you will. So they um, sent her out to Seattle and she got to shadow the program out there. And then um, for over a year before my job was ever even posted, before I ever hit send on my resume, um, they had, people had been coming together. And I learned the other day when I met with Lori Clancy that she had been at that table and had been talking about the logistics of the program and how it might work in a small town that doesn't have public transportation. And, you know, there are, we're very fortunate to have some resources, but we don't have the same amount of resources that, you know, Fayetteville or Wilmington has or Charlotte has. And just, so just Asheville down the road. Yeah. Or Asheville. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so folks were coming together to try to sort out the logistics long before my position was ever posted. And, um, yeah, I got to give them credit. So I hope that answers your sure. question. And, you know, with the North Carolina Harm Reduction Coalition, and they recognize that that is part of our work um, to involve ourselves in, in anything that's going to reduce harm. And mm -hmm. so I think all of us at this table are pretty aware of, of the collateral consequences that people face when they... Um, get caught up in the system you know mm -hmm. it's really Check. easy to get caught up in the system and it's really hard to get out mm -hmm. and so our our tribal judicial system uh, we had we had some prosecutors go out there um, some judges go out there and check out the lead program in Seattle a few years ago and our chief come up to a community club meeting months ago and shared our budget we have 10,000 right around 10,000 people living on the reservation and we have just as big as big but as, as big a budget as Ag Asheville has like we have that much money coming in but yet 
we can't get them to buy into that. Mm-hmm. And we talked to a tribal prosecutor the other day, and he said the turnover rate in the officers, law enforcement officers, is just outrageous right now. They had two people quit the other day because of everything that they're seeing, like with the with the substance use and everything. So I hope something like that happens on the reservation. And I definitely gave you a plug the other day talking to the chief. Um, I mean, it's so hard, mm-hmm. you know, especially like just getting people in recovery and, and being around, you know, the – law enforcement i mean i'm not gonna say there's not people that want the change and want to see all this but then there's also you know just getting into jails and stuff like that period it's it's tough and yeah that's why i really liked how you was talking about you make those individual connections with people because that's where it's at it's building mm-hmm. trust i mean we just gave somebody a ride and we're both in recovery and a lot of people but that don't mean anything that don't mean automatic they're going to come off and trust you you know mm-hmm. like they were very resistant yeah, were they not and we were talking. that's why we're a little <laughs> bit late because we you know wanted to give her a ride it's cold outside but you know just you got to make that effort you know you got to show people that you care by making those individual um connections building that trust yeah your word is your bond. <laughs> Deliver on it. And also, like, when you go and make that introduction, right, that first introduction, you don't, hey, I'm Garen Yoakum. I'm with the uh, <laughs> right. Waynesville Police, Police Department. Department. <laughs> yeah, hey, the Waynesville Police <laughs> Department sent me over here to make sure you're doing all right. You know, like, I'm sure that knowing you the way that I have come to know you, I know that, like, it's easy. You said it at the beginning of the show that – you feel like one of your strengths is building relationships. And it's clear that it is because of what's happened here, because mm-hmm. of the people who you interact with and meet with on a regular basis. How did you get to the point, no, like being on the, the lead program, being on your radar, and you kind of envisioning pursuing that as a career how did you get to that point in your life where that was something that you were passionate about to the point where you would pursue applying for a job like that yeah and up for the challenge (laughs) a new program in a new city like that's that shows commitment that shows dedication that shows that you're in it for the right reason and not every champion recovery champion passionate about Mm. something you're not going to commit and push for something like that if you're you know that's not where your heart's at Mm -hmm. where's your heart at garen (laughs) it's right here (laughs) i see you i see you so how much time do we have because this could be a really lengthy there is no clock here okay this could be a lengthy um response but i'm trying to think how far back to go but i think I guess what I was getting at is that like social work, that sort of thing yeah, sure. wasn't really your initial. Sure. Um, where, and another thing too is like, where was you born and raised? I think that's very <laughs> significant too. You like, want me start? I'll start there. <laughs> okay. okay. So um, I was born, raised, cultured, and educated in West Virginia. Um up on What's so funny about that, man? <laughs> I just, I don't know. I used to, I mean, Gary Ain't, I, I don't know. I just don't think you look like, or nice, act like you're from nice, West Virginia. A nice pretty girl from West Virginia. you never seen one before? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Shoot, I'm a country girl. I'm not too far off that farm. Don't be fooled. <laughs> I promise you. I didn't yeah, wear we'll, my Carhartts tonight. We'll but. get there. 
He's not cold <laughs> enough yet for all that. It will be when you leave this room, <laughs> I promise you. <laughs> no. So, yeah, I grew up on a small farm in uh, West Virginia, and there's a lot of... Um, a lot of beauty in my childhood, but there was a lot of dysfunction. Um, my my dad died tragically and unexpectedly when I was four. He was a coal miner. He might, he died in a mining accident. And then not long after that, um, my mom started seeing someone, and then she moved him in, and um, he... Definitely had an alcohol use disorder, and um, he was verbally abusive, physically abusive, and um, so I had to, I had to be tough from a young age, really tough. And um, I got into high school. I'm kind of skipping a couple things here, but. When I entered high school, I entered with a 4.0 GPA. I was, um, they had this thing where you could letter in academics when we were in middle school. It was cute. I got a little letter. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> for a jacket that I didn't own, you know, like a letterman's jacket kind of thing. Letter persons, I should letter say. Letter persons. That's better. Um, played sports, <clears throat> ran track, um, played basketball. Decided I was going to try out for cheerleading. I don't know why, because I was not peppy like that, but I did. And, um, you know, was on student council, started off strong. And then by, um, towards the end of my ninth grade year, and then that summer, I, um, I started slipping up. And um, no one in my family ever used the words coping skills. It was not a part of our vernacular, and I found myself um, coping through sub with substances, and by 10th grade, I had um, quit all my sports and was sleeping through most of my classes, and my grades had dropped, and then, I mean, it just got worse, and no teacher ever woke me up. In fact, there were times where I would sleep through the bell and I'd wake up and be all disoriented and I'd be, there'd be another class in, in there with me and I'm like, oh my goodness. No one ever asked what was going on and my mom was pretty involved in the school. She used to work the concession stand at the games and stuff, but there were a lot of things going on in my household that the teachers didn't know about and... I don't think we had a social worker at my school. We had a couple guidance counselors who I found to be pretty intimidating. I wasn't going to them for any guidance, but anyhow. And then... Um, so that made an impact on you, though, sleeping and nobody... It really did. It was a catalyst for me. You know, of course, in that moment, I wasn't realizing all of that. But sometimes uh, we can be impacted and influenced by... Um, by the negative things or by, you know, the lack thereof. Um, but so the end of my junior year, my mom was diagnosed with breast cancer, and um, she died six months later. So it was very fast and aggressive, and I was not doing well and um, started my senior year off 
Um, my mom was hospitalized and I was really struggling with all that. And um, after she died, I didn't have any support either. <laughs> and um, I remember I took like a week off from school and I came back and it was like, none of my teachers wanted to know how I was doing. No one, it was just like, well, here's what you miss. I mean, I, re I remember physically like getting a stack of missed assignments to do. And there was no like very little compassion. Um, and I got into some trouble and I was on probation and, and then I was living on my own because I wasn't going to live with my mom's boyfriend um, in the house. So his drinking was just really problematic. And so I was on my own and just reckless and incredibly vulnerable. And everybody around me was using something. And um, I made a very narrow escape from from a lot of that, from those, that lifestyle. Um, after a few months of um, living on my own and I was really struggling and not going to school and my grandmother, who I wanna say she was the first harm reductionist in my life, she just said, move in with me, no conditions. I've got my basement, there's a separate door. You can come and go as you please. I just wanna know that you're here and that you're eating and you're sleeping. You won't have a curfew. and I mean, by her saying those things to me, I wanted to have a curfew. I wanted to respect her, and so I did, and I made some changes, and, you know, I had, um, in addition to my grandmother, I had, I did have a lot of supportive friends. I mean, I had a lot of people who I was out there being reckless with, and, but, um, but ultimately, ultimately, I mean, I can go back at that point in my life, and I can think of some really pivotal moments and some pivotal conversations from friends, from a couple other family members, in addition to my grandmother, and also my probation officer, who I have looked for, and I've never been able to find mm. her. I'll just say her name, Officer Stacy Claxton. Officer Stacy Claxton. If yeah. you are out there, <laughs> no, it's hard to tell. I mean that point in my life everybody just looked old so she but she didn't I mean she might have been like in her 20s or 30s but you know I was young and not, well, another you know but too, I mean she like, could have got she could have gotten married that could have been a married name and maybe you know it's hard to tell but this is ground zero the opioid epidemic right I mean, that was this is just, yes like, and so when I say I made um a narrow escape um I tried OxyContin. I mean, I can tell you exactly when OxyContin debuted in my hometown because I knew everybody who was dealing. I knew when indictments were coming out. I knew what was happening in my hometown. And so here's this new pill. And I didn't know the difference between a benzodiazepine or an opiate. I knew, I knew what a stimulant was. I knew the different effects, but I didn't always know what it was I was taking and it made me very sick and I remember my friend saying if you just take it a couple more times you'll get past all that and I did but I never got past that sickness and I'm very grateful for that I mean I, we're never fully out of the woods because we're only human and you know I never want to say I'm above anything 
I don't know what my future holds, but I know in that moment, um, had a few variables been different, I'm, I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be the lead case manager. I wouldn't be here having this conversation with you all, and I may not even be alive. Because six months after that drug came into my circle of friends, I've got my first friend in the ground. And I have since lost 20 friends. And I just, I don't think I knew at that point in my life that I would end up working in this field and in this capacity, but I knew that I wanted to do something in the service of other people. And I think somewhere inside of me, there's this really strong um, proclivity for justice. I want justice. I want fairness. I want equity for people. And I've always felt that. I mean, I can go back to memories of being a little kid and hearing about the suffering of indigenous peoples and hearing about the suffering of people of color and, you know, poverty and just always feeling all that in some kind of cosmic way and just want, wanting to do right by people. And, you know, Maya Angelou said, when you learn, you teach, when you get, you give. And I felt like I had something to give. I don't know. <laughs> so I decided um, it was either between being a social worker or a high school teacher. I really wanted to work with adolescents because I felt like that was the place where everything un was starting to unravel for me. And, and maybe had I just had the right folks at the right time. I mean, I eventually did, but there were a lot of years that <laughs> were really messy for me. And, and, um, and like be that person who didn't yes, see you when these yes, things happened right. to you. Be that, you person that, to be that person that could step in and say, hey, what's going on? How can I help? Yes, I crave that. And I... Can I make this point? Like you said, you're from... Was it a small school? It was. There, I think there were about 200 people in my graduating class. So not right. a small school. So it should like you school. would think that they would have, you know been more compassionate or show you know been like oh wow Gary Ann wasn't at school today for a week and and you know pressed in or you know asked you at least hey is everything okay and when it's a smaller school it makes it that much more monumental on you know to think back on and reflect on and mm -hmm. stuff and I'm with you on that and you do have something to give I think that mm -hmm. you know you Come say on. in that you know uh had different circumstances, you know, if things had been different, then you wouldn't be here. But just for the way that I think everything happened the way you're supposed to, and that you're exactly where you're supposed to be, because you do have something to give others. Thank you. Make me cry. <laughs> Thank you. So I'll just try to giggle um, <laughs> through all that. But yeah, I really felt like, you know, here's this. Here's this young girl who enters high school with this GPA, and she's involved in things. And in, within a year's time, she's sleeping through every class, and no one ever asked hmm. what's going on. And you know, I want I want to. I don't want to sound like I've got this, like I'm harboring all this resentment towards towards those teachers. And I, I did for a long time. I mean, I was really angry that. 
you know, that, that the adults in my life didn't act like the adults that, that I needed at that point. And so I just made a commitment to myself and to any adolescent that I could have the opportunity and the honor to work with that I was going to do things totally different. And I did. And I, for better or for worse, and whether my students loved me or despised me in some of those moments, nobody slept in my classroom. <laughs> nobody. And if they fell asleep, if they attempted to, I'd say, I need to speak with you for a few minutes after class. And then I inquired. You know, I wanted to know them. Teach the whole child, not just the subject. Mm. And it was imperative for me to understand what social issues they were bringing into my classroom. And, it, and I had a lot of students who um, were, you know, economically disadvantaged. And I had students with ankle bracelets on. And um, I actually I had a couple of students, two of them, um, after a year that they were in my class, um, one of them, he was tried as an adult for armed robbery. Oh my gosh. And it broke my heart. And I just had, I had a, what I thought was a really special connection with him. And he, he was, he just shined in my classroom, but you know, he got caught up in some stuff beyond the walls of that school that were just out of my control and arguably out of his. But, but what would it look like? I'm sorry. I'm just like, uh, imagining things in my head. What would it look like, you know, if you had that teacher that when you was going through that time of crisis situations and when your life is just, you know, you're messing up. If you had that teacher that cared and showed up to your court day and was like, you know, I mean, because evidently something's going on. And I did do and that. And I wrote the letters. That's awesome. And <laughs> I did. Let's, let's make a movie. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds like a movie. I, I want. I want to. I say did everything something. in my power to be there for them, but Gary and I want to say something. You know, I'm a firm believer in in <clears throat> levels, right? And so you're going through this season of teaching these kids and everything, and I feel like, you know, I, I'm a believer, so I feel like God was preparing you for the next level, this next season that you're in in your life, working with people that struggle struggle with substance use and mental health issues, and. And a lot of times whenever we, you know, it's a known fact, whenever we start using that drug, that's the mindset that we stay in. So it's like you, you're dealing with kids of that age again. You know what I mean? It's like he was, he, was, he was preparing you for exactly what you're, the job that you're in right now. That's what I, I feel like I need to tell you that. Yeah. I see that connection for sure. Um, yeah, so and I did that for eight years. And my last two years I was um, department chair and – it was a great opportunity, but I do not see myself in a supervisory role. That's not my strength. Um, my sister is a principal, very proud of her, and that's that's her game. But I was <laughs> I saw it as an opportunity to hopefully influence the teachers on my team, not not to be there in a punitive way, but to influence them in a positive way and inspire them and talk to them about you know, teaching and learning and building relationships with kids. And and when I went in to observe a teacher, if there was a child sleeping in there, oh, I'd be like on fire. But I'd have to sit there through it and just, because when you observe, you're supposed to be 
kind of invisible in that classroom, but just that. But you're the there. Yeah. You could probably everyone see. Everyone knows you're there. You could probably see steam coming out of my ears because I just was like, "How can this teacher, this adult, stand up there and see this kid sleeping?" And I don't know. So it, that would frustrate me. But it takes a special person. Like <laughs> it takes a special person to connect with young people in an English class. Right, like to be able to. Oh, you was English teacher. Yeah. She was an English teacher. Okay. To be an English teacher and to be able to prepare and deliver that material in a way that's receptive to young folks, right? Like when I was in high school, I was that kid that was sleeping. If I was, mm -hmm. if I was there, you know what I mean. And like just because, like I just didn't connect with adults like I didn't want to even though I wanted to live like an adult and make my own choices I didn't want I didn't listen to what they had to say so it would have taken a very special person to deliver the material in a way that I could receive it right and be able to to make that connection what led up to you leaving and pursuing a different career path so policy ultimately is what drove me out of the classroom. And I had a really hard time seeing how I could still close my door and teach in a way that allowed critical thought and creativity to flourish in my room because the district I was teaching in was moving towards a pay-for-performance model mm. where the teacher's pay would be based primarily on the test scores. And what year was this? This was in 2012. I decided to... So that's a model that's kind of rolled out nationwide It has, almost. and it's not been successful. So and I've I heard, got yeah. really politically involved. And, um, <laughs> <laughs> and at the time, my sister was like, I'm glad we have different last names. <laughs> oh, no. It got He's out there in the picket line or something. Well, and I would go down to county commission and the board of education and just, I tried to formulate a coalition of teachers, parents, and community members and stakeholders and students. And it was called Action for Education. And we, we did a lot of organizing around those policies. And we really tried to be that resistance and to push back. But we were up against a beast, yeah. a probably now it's a multi-billion dollar beast. I know for sure it was a multi-million dollar beast at that point. And there were a lot of really powerful people like Bill Gates, Bill Melinda Gates were really pushing for this. And even artists like John Legend and at one point Cory Booker, Senator Cory Booker, who I'm a big fan of his and he does you know, he did a lot of direct action and community organizing when he was mayor. Um, and so, but I think a lot of people got really, they were really misguided in, in what, what true teaching and learning was about. And it became this kind of business model. And to me, I just, I just can't, I can't there's just so many things that you cannot measure when you're talking about human relationships and teaching. I mean, when you're looking at a math problem, there's one right answer. There might be a couple different ways to get to that answer, but there's one right answer. 
you're looking at a piece of literature and you want to tell a child that they need to think like a test maker who is, in most cases, um, those questions are culturally biased. They're written from people of privilege, multiple privileges um, from their social identities. Um, and so I just found myself ever more disheartened with the direction in which policy was going. And a lot of it was coming down from the federal government. And it didn't matter. It was These are bipartisan policies. So if there was any, anything at that point in time that the government was agreeing upon. It's like um, the only thing. It was the only thing. I mean, people were crossing the aisle. And, and I'm all for that. Like, I want that. I really do. But... Not for when, the for the right reasons, <laughs> right? For the right reasons, and so it was. Things were just moving in a direction where I felt like I, I'm many things, and some of those aren't always great qualities. But I think one thing for sure about me is I'm principled, and I cannot bend on something if I just can't get in line if. I don't believe in it, and so I stepped away, and my intention was to spend a year just trying to reassess and figure out what my place was going to be in education, if it was going to be in policy or doing, you know, something else, and then I'd been doing a lot of different community organizing around a number of social issues, and I'd done some political organizing, too. I had a couple friends run for office, and people I believed in and I helped work on their campaigns and really just have always found myself really charged by a lot of social issues, particularly around injustices. And I said, well, maybe I'm going to go into social work. And so at this time I was really charged up about the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and just really devastated and feeling, feeling like, I don't know what to do to help people, but this is really, it was really hard for me. And um, it felt like I would probably work with veterans or something that seemed like the direction I was going to go. Um, and let me back up because I for, forgot to mention that I had applied to the MSW program <laughs> at Western. And so I applied to that and I found out I got in. And initially I wasn't really sure what it was I was going to do with my social work degree. But I felt it was kind of funny how I'd come full circle. I had made a, a decision at a very important juncture in my life when I was 18 about giving of myself, and I was either going to be a teacher or a social worker, and I chose the one because I felt like I'm going to empower people in this classroom and help people transcend things, and then I ended up coming full circle and see myself as someone who can help empower people. <laughs> but... When I first got into the program, I wasn't sure what exactly I was going to do, but I thought for sure I'd probably work with veterans, not at the VA, but more in like a wounded warriors project or something a little more kind of on the outside of systems and pushing um, against systems that weren't really working for people. Um, or weren't as effective as they could be. So I don't want to be mistaken and say that the VA is not working, but help I think improve. help improve. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and just really advocate for people. I, I really wanted to do that. Um, 
just seeing so many men and women coming back and just really struggling. And, you know, over 200,000 veterans are on our streets every night. And, um, gosh, that's just like rips my heart out. But so I know, I know what breaks my heart. <laughs> if I can be driven by that for better or for worse. Um, so then I thought, well, maybe I'll be a school social worker. You know, that's kind of a natural fit for me. And then I thought, no, you need to stay away from schools for a minute because <laughs> you're just going to find yourself so frustrated at that policy. And, um, so bit by bit, as I got into the coursework and really started to think about all the issues I care about and what is the one place where these things converge and really get amplified. And that is in the criminal justice system. And so I thought that's what I want to do. And I interned at the Buncombe County Detention Facility, and I did a short internship also at HelpMate, which is a, a domestic violence agency in Asheville, because I really thought I was going to work with women who were involved in the criminal justice system, either girls or women, and you know, knowing that over 90%, and that's just what we know, that's what's reported of, of women caught up in that system, have a history of trauma and victimization, I thought, if you want to get some foundation, you better go work for a domestic violence agency and really try to get some understanding. And of course, I had my own personal experience with that in my family of origin, my home that I grew up in, but really wanted to know more about what that looked like for other people and, um, you know, just patriarchy on a larger scale, trying to understand all that. And, um, and then I, you know, when I was working at Buncombe County um, Detention Facility, I was working with more men than women, and I was like, "Why would you limit yourself?" See, these headphones are bothering you. No, they're just falling <laughs> off my uh, little tiny head here. You're doing, my you're doing a great job. Tiny brain. Yeah. <laughs> Gary, no, I just got to rail on myself. I'm good at self-deprecation. <laughs> we'll, we'll build you right back up. Thank you. I already feel held up. But, uh, yes, I was working um, with, with folks there and really felt like, don't limit yourself. And, and I, really got re I really got interested in reentry work and um, helped launch the Be In The Box campaign. And um, there were some really key individuals who came in and helped make it successful. So I kind of did a little bit of the footwork in the beginning, and then I got my first job out of grad school and kind of disappeared for a little bit from that campaign, but then kind of showed up towards the end. And they were able to successfully get a public ordinance for the county and the city. So that's really good. And um, then did some more reentry work once I got out of grad school. But it, was, it had a punitive aspect to it. Um, I was having to conduct your analysis and call probation and parole and it just didn't it just didn't feel right for me and I recognize um I really you know I really identified for a long time with with harm reduction approaches and I really recognized that that being in the role that I was in just wasn't the best fit for me and you know getting back to being principled I was like no nah, this isn't 
this isn't good for me. And so I left that role and um, I really felt like I needed to take another step back for a minute and really just get right with myself. And I had made a lot of really big decisions in a short period of time, you know, leaving Charlotte, moving to Asheville, going to grad school, career change, all this stuff. And I was like, I'm just gonna, I love to travel. So I was like, I'm gonna take some time. And I just did a self-imposed and proclaimed sabbatical. That a girl. <laughs> and um, really got right with myself during that time and really got some clarity around a lot of things, you know, just not just professionally, but personally. I mean, if I'm not good with myself and I'm not feeling whole and um, clear about things, then I can't, I can't do this work. So... Um, so I did that. I went Where'd took, you go? Went and took care That's of myself. What I was say. <laughs> Where'd you go? Oh man, I'm so lucky to be able to do all these things. I went to Guatemala. One of my dear friends was living down there at the time, and so I spent some time down there visiting her and um, got to do some volunteer work too. I really wanted to have that at the center of my travels too, to give back and not just be a hedonist. What'd you do down there? So I worked a little bit at a orphanage, mm. excuse me, and um, then left there, came back for like a month. Pardon me. I <laughs> <laughs> hope that didn't show up, but um, <laughs> came back for like a month and then um, I went off to Southeast Asia and I went to Thailand, Laos, what? Vietnam, and Cambodia. What'd you do over there for that's service? So awesome. Yeah, dude. Yeah. Oh, that that's one of my dreams right there is to oh, be able to do things do like it. that. Oh you yeah, we've already it. we start talking about Everest. That's already kind of planted there. We'll see how it oh, goes. Oh, and you guys will do it. You yeah. both are so amazing. For well, lack of you, for lack of a better oh, adjective. You <laughs> um, she she was timid with it. She wasn't coming strong. <laughs> no. <laughs> I was dang. She was timid. She was dancing around it. <laughs> no, that was called emphasis. Okay. okay. There was a prolonged pause there. Okay. For yeah. emphasis. Dramatic. Okay. Stephen. Yeah. Stephen. <laughs> There's that West Virginia. Uh-huh. Um, but service work. What'd you do? You've got there? to do it. So, I I was at a lot of different social enterprises. I did more observing than so than like service work when I was mm. over there, but I really felt that it was important um, to not just go over there and lay on these Thai and Vietnamese beaches, <laughs> but to really, really learn about what people had been living through over there for decades. And when I was in Vietnam, I mean, it's just wild to be there because I think so cool. in America, <laughs> no, um, and I was by myself too. So that added a whole other element oh, wow. to um, to this journey. And um, but I learned when I was over there that you know we call the we call it the Vietnam War and they call it the American War. So just changing one word, you know, really changes a lot about the impact of that war on on the Vietnamese. And I found myself doing math, and I don't do math, Terry. <laughs> the English yeah. teacher. Yeah. Um, the whole time I was there, every time I, 
I would look in someone's eyes and I'd wonder, were you a baby in somebody's arms during that war? Were you my age during that war? Who did you lose? What did you experience? How did this impact your attachment and your nervous system, the way it was wired and your brain development? And I just found it really hard to not think about those things when I was over there. And then in Cambodia, there was a genocide in the 70s. And um, I don't know if it's the youngest um, country in the world, young in terms of the population, the people who are living there, but I would say it's probably one of the youngest. I was hard-pressed to find somebody who was my age, and I did not see the oldest person I saw the whole time I was in Cambodia was not until like the night before I left or maybe two nights before I left, and she appeared to be in her 60s. So that was really wild. Did, did you, whenever you went over there and, and you've seen all these places, uh, and just hearing you speak about how you try to relate and understand that, you know, the struggles that they went through. Cause a lot of people don't do that. You know, I don't, I don't do that a lot. I don't stop to think like, what's this person been through? Or, you know, what kind of trauma have they seen or experienced, but what is it like, did anything stick in your spirit? Did anything impact you now? Like transcend that that you brought back home with you? Oh goodness. Um, I mean, all of that, you know, and then just really, I really want to, live a life that is examined. I want to always be fine-tuning my life and myself. And I really thought about what are the ways in which I've been complicit in any of the suffering that people are enduring right now. You know, whether it's the clothes on my back that was made in a sweatshop by women and children, whether it's... I just think about those things. <laughs> um, so just always try to try to be mindful. And even when something is so painful or hard to listen through, listen to, excuse me, I try to sit with it. I feel like that is the very least I can do. I can't be everywhere in the world and I can't always be given of myself and I have to slow down and take care of myself sometimes. But I've been listening to this news program for about 15 years, almost every day of my life. And um, the only time I miss it is if I am traveling, but then I try to catch up on it because it's really informative. But they do at the very beginning of the program, like 15 minutes of headlines. And there's always some really, really horrible things. And I just, sometimes I just want to turn it off and turn on a fun song or something. And then I stop myself and just, Try to be present, and that's the least I can do for people. And I don't know if I answered your question about what I brought back, but I think those are some of the things I carried there with me because I think those are just some of the way I move through the world, just really trying to be mindful of other people and and their suffering. And, yeah, whatever I can do to not be complicit in it. We don't have, and we, I heard I, we heard this sermon a few weeks ago about we have a waning pulse of empathy, you know, in society today. Like we don't have people that stop to 
cry with you or to celebrate with you or to, you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. that is something that's like an anomaly nowadays. And it's, you know, it's awesome to sit here and listen to that, Gary Ann. I think, you know, in addition to that, I mean, I think we just largely, in a, in a really massive way, we are spiritually devoid. You know, we are the most overweight, addicted, medicated, mm-hmm. indebted cohort that the world has ever known. And that bothers me. That's the kind of stuff that keeps me up at night. <laughs> I don't sleep well. But I want to know what is behind all that. Why all this pain? Why all this suffering? And what is, what's, what's driving all of those behaviors and all those things and yeah (laughs) no go ahead Caitlin's wanting to say so I don't know I think I'm kind of veering off a little bit with your original question but I hope what do you think some of that made sense or yeah (laughs) (laughs) my experience tells me it's a lot uh fear driven you know um not being able to accept discomfort Mm -hmm. and not being able to live with kind of like learn to live, accept, tolerate the kind of cards that we are dealt with. Like you, all the things that you overcome, overcame all of the, um, the challenges that you were met with through overcoming those challenges. It created that sense of like tolerance or strength that allowed you to meet the next challenge with like some compassion, right? And being able to accept the next challenge, kind of like create some momentum through overcoming these things, through um, the kind of childhood trauma that you described in high school and losing your losing your parents and um, being a teacher and sitting in the classroom and seeing it and just like overcoming those challenges just continue to create that momentum that like not only can I um, overcome these things, but I can like own it and do it well, do it with some compassion, do it with some love and like be a leader in my community, teach people how to do this. Mm-hmm. It's not something that we're naturally born with. Our natural response to discomfort or pain is to resist it, run run away, push it away, avoid it at all costs. Right. The me, Steve, the, um, former drug and alcohol user will gravitate to those pleasurable experiences and cling to them and hold on to them and avoid those painful ones at all costs. But guess what? Steve grows Steve prospers through learning to meet those difficult times Mm -hmm. with some compassion. And it's not easy, but I can learn to tolerate that first. If I can tolerate the pain, then I can eventually learn to meet it with some compassion. I can eventually learn to forgive myself and not hold myself to such a high standard and have such high expectations. Like it's okay. I'm okay with where I'm Come at. Come on, brother. 
you firing up that flame? Yeah, man. Like, it's, o- <laughs> it's okay. Like, I'm okay where I'm at right now. Like, the mm-hmm. things that I'm, I'm doing is the best that I can, and that's okay. It's momentum, man. Like, I'm a firm believer in momentum and creating that momentum. Mm-hmm. I, I can control one thing. I can control my actions, right? That's where we come from in the world that we live in. That's karma. My karma is the intentions of my actions. Um, I can control that. So that's like my, my momentum, right? The direction that my life is moving in. But then I put these people around me, cats like Caleb, right? People like yourself, right? And we can build that momentum at a higher rate, higher volume, right? We can move that momentum faster. But it only takes like one little, one day for me to wake up and be like, you know... Caleb wants me to go running today, but I'm just going to lay in bed because I think that's the best thing for me to do. Mm-hmm. And then you're like, kind of like your momentum will slow down a little bit. And then it's easier to lay in bed again. And it's mm-hmm. easier to lay in bed again. But when I have these people around me and I've created my own momentum, it allows me to like overcome those challenges. It allows me to not only, not only overcome them, but like in a sense, welcome them, mm-hmm. right? Like it's okay, Right. I didn't do my homework today. And I walked into class and I was like, I didn't do my homework. Oh, well, right. <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> you know, I, a lot, I had to work too much and had a lot of things. Didn't I? Hey, there's our camera girl right there, Tatiana. Um, who, shout out to Tatiana Vereen. She came in today to take some photos of us for our, um, for our website. What's the Instagram, Tatiana, where people can see your photos? Tati's vision, Tati's vision photography on Instagram. Go, she's like kind of like dabbling in the photography world and she's taking some awesome shots. But I walked right into class and I was like, I owned it. I was like, yeah, I didn't do my homework. What are you gonna, what's, what's the worst that could happen? Mm-hmm. I didn't do it. It's a grade, bro. It ain't, it ain't the end of my life. It ain't the end, like in the grand scheme of yes. the next hopefully 40 years of my life. What's that, what does it mean? <laughs> mm-hmm. It don't mean nothing. It doesn't mean nothing. I did a lot of a lot of things happen this weekend. I worked all those holidays, right? Another like unfortunate circumstance came in like my personal life, something I had to deal with some friends and family back home that I'll kind of touch on a little bit later. But I lost somebody that was very close to me, somebody that I loved. So like things happen. I walked into class. It was okay. I didn't do my homework. You had homework over Thanksgiving break? Yeah, I get it. What's up with that, huh? Look, they're uh, both shaking their heads over there. Uh, yeah, I don't know, you know? But it's just like, it, but to other people, to people who haven't like, haven't trained their, trained their mind or trained themselves to like accept those things, it could have been like a big deal to others. You know, people like hold themselves to like this, I, and I hold myself to a high standard, but people hold themselves to these high expectations and like, if I fail, it's okay. Not meaning if I fail the class, but if I don't. <laughs> if I'd be I, catastrophic, right? If I fail the class, it's not okay. But if I don't, like, do my so little things Lori's like that, it's going to okay. be calling you here in a little bit. <laughs> Lori Clancy, don't be dropping me any comments down there. I love you. Well, I think something to add to that is, you know, just being gentle with yourself. Yeah, I mean, dude. and it's hard. I think... I didn't realize this about myself because I always thought that word perfectionism meant something that looked totally different than me. I mean, I'm a, I'm a girl who my hair's messy. My clothes are wrinkled. I'm, you know, I don't, I don't present in this physical way that says I'm 
really put together or, you know, rigid or anything. But some of the ideas about myself or the way I should be doing things or the person I should be, I really found myself getting caught up. And I still have those tendencies at times to to be a perfectionist. And sometimes it transfers into my work. And, and it definitely did when I was a teacher. And, you know, that's a recipe for burnout. And <laughs> I'm not trying to to go down that route. Um, so I don't know if that is in keeping with what you were saying, but I kind of think I'm just, I'm just learning to be more gentle with myself and just accept my shortcomings and that not everything is going to be perfect. And like you said, in the grand scheme of my life, this is just but a little tiny dot on that timeline. So, not this moment here. Are you just this is gonna are take you dogging up, NC no, wrong? No, are you no. dogging our podcast? <laughs> no, you got me wrong. I mean, like this is in like no, I know, I know. reference I, to the one assignment. I, got you, I did I say got that you. wrong. No, NC Raw is gonna take up like several feet on that time. You, you've already been putting it. You're listening to in, you, you know. You told us that you've been listening to it all the time at the house yes so i have listened to the first 17 episodes (laughs) and then i've bounced around a little bit because i met trevor who was on the show a few weeks ago Uh i met trevor actually a while back when he was interning and i'm not sure if he's still at that internship but Mm -hmm. at mountain projects i met him there and then saw him at the recovery rally and then so i wanted to listen to a few minutes of his on my way out here today and then I lost service, but I've kind of been bouncing around and then I listened to a couple ladies today. I want to say they were episode 27, maybe. It's hard to believe. So I've kind of bounced around. uh, I wanted mm -hmm. to hear Steve's story, but I've learned so much from this program already and I've been able to use some of the information to help people I care about. You know, I'm care about a woman right now who, um, her daughter is really struggling. And when I learned about the mother's program, uh, Sherry, was that her name? Yeah, she was Sherry on the show Barker. Okay. Sherry Barker. Mm-hmm. I called Sunrise and found out the time okay. of the meeting. And I let um, this friend of mine know. And I don't know because I haven't seen her in about a week with the holidays and everything. I don't know if she ended up going to that meeting, but just having some takeaways like that. And of course there's all kinds of really beautiful takeaways as well. And I was just joking. You don't really, you don't have to like, <laughs> um, I don't have to what? You don't have to kiss You can ass. get in so hey. you're all <laughs> on your arm if you yeah. want. No. I'll, I'll, hey. give you, I'll give you a sticker for the back of your car before you I leave do tonight. want a sticker and I want a res hope, um, we got them muscle in shirt. We got them. Muscle shirt. Hey, we just celebrate. I just wanted to like get this in here because we was talking about how many episodes a year. Yeah. The other day we had our first meeting. Yeah. So a, a year ago last week, bromance was the first time that this bromance <laughs> oh. started here. The True first God. time that we and Caleb sat down at a table to begin the conversation about doing a podcast. <laughs> I was scrolling through my phone yesterday, I think it was. Yeah, yesterday, looking at old pictures, and I was like, every now and then I'll stop on a picture and show Caleb and be like, remember this? Yeah. But there was 
there was dang Rob. I was like, oh, the first time I met him. And I was looking at like, who's this white boy? At the bowling alley. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> at the so bowling alley. Saying. Hey, so they were at the bowling alley. I've told this story before on the podcast. So they're at the bowling alley. And uh, I was trying to talk to Caleb. I had met him like the week before. And we played the podcast. And I go rolling up into the bowling alley. I'm all jacked up. I'm excited to talk to him about it. This girl right here, Caitlin, she wouldn't even give me the time of day. She oh, she was like she, at that time. She would. She, she wouldn't even give me the time of day. Look at her. Did you ask and her to speak? And now you're going to be in my wedding. Now oh. I'm here, yeah. Uh-uh. Don't you even. What? About the last time you was in the wedding. I know. I know. <laughs> what? He didn't show up. He's supposed to be a groomsman. Yeah, that was on the the <laughs> podcast that I talked about yeah so the day i got the last time i was invited to be a a part of a wedding i got arrested and didn't show up (laughs) so my best friend's anniversary day is also my clean day my recovery day oh wow yeah that is something yeah so now this is the second wedding that the next wedding that i'll be a part of my brother (laughs) the next wedding that i'm gonna (laughs) skip out on yeah um, so, <laughs> so you end up landing this gig, right? Yes. And it, from based off of what you've kind of told us tonight, like it's kind of like, um, a lot of like your career has been like kind of like building up to this point, right? Mm-hmm. Like the. Yeah, I feel like a lot of things, and that's why I kind of got granular about my life there for a minute or several minutes because I feel like a lot of things in my life personally and then professionally have prepared me for this work and somebody said something to me a long time ago that always stuck with me so simple you know I used to think about the things that happened to me and then this person said what if those things happened for you Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, that's an interesting way of reframing that. You change one word and it changes the, changes the entire lens through which you see those things that have happened that were definitely challenging. I mean, I grieved for a long time over my mother's death. And there were times I didn't know how I was going to get through that. But I think about just the ways in which that experience just really broke me up open, you know, and just kind of stripped me down to this like core level and like, what am I going to do about this? (laughs) And how can this terrible experience be of some use later in my life and help me to help other people or something? Can I just say something? One of the the sayings I really love and I apply to my own life is, our trauma is our treasure. You know, that's right. what drives me. Everything that I've been through, I make peace with that, you know. Mm-hmm. And I try to figure it out, try to chew on it, figure out how not, you know, if, I, if it's preventable. But that's what fuels my fire, and that's what makes me want to give back. Go ahead. Sorry, baby. That is just what I was thinking about, you know, because you had said, you know, you want to know, like, why are they why what's causing this person to be overweight or 
to be turning to substances or to be doing the things that they're doing. And it's like, you know, why, like you just said, why is it happening to me? But why, why is it, or why can't it be something that's happening for me to mold me, to teach me, to bring me through that pain so to make me a stronger person? And, you know, when it's happening at that time, you know, just like you said, it's like, why are these things happening to me? And just going through that trauma, like with your, with your, both your parents, mm-hmm. you know? And it's like, it's one of those things where, I mean, it takes, it takes going through all that to truly, you know, be able to sit back and reflect on that and be like, okay, I had to go through those things to be who I am today, you know? It's not the situation that makes you who you are, but. It's how you deal with it. Right. Um, and th- through spiritual eyes, you know, because mm-hmm. that's what I was thinking about the, the whole time when she was talking about that. It's just that um, there is a purpose to it. There is a purpose to it. And whether that's to build you to be that influencer for other people to positive things or to be, you know, that person to start a podcast to help people or, you know, just uh, the different roles of where we're all at. And that's what I was thinking about when y'all were like staring at me <laughs> like in Zara now. A little bit ago. Like in Zara now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do. I think, I think if we really have an opportunity to examine the things that we've experienced or been through that's happened to us or for us and, Figure out a way to channel all that and use it for for something good. Yes, something the hardest part. Right, that's what use I was it trying as a to catalyst. get to. Right, the hardest part is to recognize it when it's happening. Yeah, and to oh. be able to like see the value in it at that time because it seems so unbearable, right? Yeah. And it just seems like I don't know how I'm going to get through this at that time. Um, however, like looking back now, like those moments in my life where I was like, felt that, I don't know how I can get through that, or what has fostered the most growth, and like, uh, immediate growth, like meaning like, in a short, short period of time, like these little things that have happened, and a lot of mine like happened in early recovery, like, I wasn't using, I was going through the process, some significant events happen to the point where I was like, I don't know how I'm going to get through this. But I turned back to like what worked for me in my recovery, mm-hmm. my meditation practice and things like that. And then it just like, I turned into a new person because I went, I used it, used it to my advantage kind of air quotes. Like it just, I don't know. It's like seeing the value in it at that time is so hard. Mm-hmm. It's so hard. Well, thankfully for retrospection, we can use those experiences to embolden us when we are struggling in our current situations. It's easy to lose sight of that sometimes because you just, you're in the thick of something. Mm -hmm. But then if you can remember, go back in your mind to a previous experience Mm -hmm. and the way you overcame something. And even if you didn't, you know, I didn't cope with my, with my mother's Mm -hmm. death in a positive way. I mean, I was, it was excruciating that's the only word I know how mm-hmm. to say. But 
I was, I was a teenager. I only knew what I knew. I didn't come from a family that used, like I said, words like coping skills or even taught me what those things were really. So I just used what I knew, what I was observing. <laughs> so anyway, and I think that's not to go back to that. That goes for probably all of us. Mm-hmm. Like it's just not something like that is talked about. Mm-hmm. It's a topic that's not talked about. Like where you come from, hey, get over it, Caleb. It's going to be okay. Life's going to be okay. You know, like you don't always get what you want. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, those are the, the things that you hear. But what does that mean? How does that help me? Right? Mm-hmm. How do I, how so do what, I, how what, do what I believe that? What would you say? I would say, I don't know. I don't, I don't have a kid, any kids yet, but <laughs> I don't know what I would say. I would say like, I don't know. I mean, it, it's very circumstantial, but I think yeah. that, um, like when my aunt died, mm-hmm. you know, I took it and I told Caitlin this on the road. Um, I could just let it destroy me, or I, I took it as an opportunity to to be that leader that I strive to be for my family, and to show them how to handle things differently, mm-hmm. you know, in a healthy manner. So I just ran for nine days straight. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, suffer. Yeah, I'm that. gonna suffer. I'm gonna suffer. Right. right. <laughs> I'm gonna suffer the way that Caleb McCoy knows how to suffer. Yeah, and I've. You know, I think a lot of times yeah. it's easy for people to look at the current generation or or to criticize people's parenting strategies, but I'm really inspired by so many things with young people, and I'm inspired by several different um, parenting techniques that I've been able to observe in my friends and in my sisters. And one thing I keep coming across is, like, people talk to their kids at, a lot of times about emotional regulation and how to identify their emotions and how to regulate them. I mean, I can't speak for all parents, but I've been I've been really fortunate to observe that and I, I really see where that's a huge step forward because those words I don't know. No one ever asked me I've really never heard those words. how I was feeling. <laughs> what is that? How do you feel? Or, Give me a feeling word. How do you, you feel? Know, you know, like, like no. people right. weren't uh-huh. talking about that kind of stuff when I was growing up. No one in my family, my teachers weren't talking about it. And mm-hmm. I think there's a push towards that. I mean, that's a good thing. When you found out that you were going to be the case manager for the Leeds program, this grassroots program rolling out into the mountains of western north carolina right what what did you do tell me what the first day on the job was like like you got so many things going on like it's all new you have so many challenges things to overcome like because it's more than just being it being a grassroots like new program, it's not just meeting fearless clients. Mm-hmm. You talked about building the relationships in the police department. But you're also building the relationships in the community mm-hmm. with these resources that you're attempting to connect your clients with. Yes. So like, what was that progression like for you? And like, what, where did you start? How do you even know where to start? Right? Yeah. So my first day on the job was, paperwork nothing too <laughs> exciting your social security card yeah driver's license <laughs> um blood type <laughs> blood type um <laughs> so you know kind of those formalities that one would expect 
when they first get mm-hmm. on the job. And then uh, we did a little bit of traveling across the state, went over to Wilmington, and we picked up a van load of naloxone and uh, syringes and other equipment and brought all that back to the west side to try to get everything set up for our mobile syringe access programs and for our overdose prevention work in the community. So we brought all that back, and then there was a harm reduction conference at Lake Junaluska, and that was in... That's a national conference? That was a southern one. Southern, okay. So that was... But there were several hundred people there, and it was Mm -hmm. great. So many different tracks that you could take and different kind of panels you could go in and sit on and or observe I did a lot of observing that week but so I went to that and then um I just started making cold calls and first organization I called was the open door and um, connected with Mindy Rathbone who is such a beautiful human being and she just kind of took me in under her wing and she said all right we're going to focus on housing I'm going to take you to the Southwestern Homeless Coalition meeting, and it's here in Silva. Okay. And so from that meeting, I met um, Destry Liget, who is getting ready to start a transitional house here in Jackson County, and I think part of her focus is going to be around the housing first model, so housing people where they are at, not where we want them to be, but really trying to build that capacity. Um. And so met some of the folks around housing and then went to the Pathway Center, I think the next day, Haywood Christian Ministries. Of course, I went and um, connected with Meridian Behavioral Health and ACS at the Balsam Center because those are our key stakeholders in in the LEAD program. So I wanted to get to know them. I had lunch with Paige and Chief maybe the second day on the job. And I hadn't yet met Lieutenant Tyler Trantham, who's also a key um, person in the Waynesville PD who helps with the program. And he's been, he's referred so many people. And that is a man who knows his community and is so respected in his community. I just got to say that. Um, Now getting back on task. So that was kind of first couple weeks on the job. I went to a forum at Haywood Community College And it was an opioid forum. We went to one in Asheville with the chief and Paige and just really started to kind of get my finger on the pulse of the community and what the resources are. Went to NC Works, met with some of the employment specialists there. And I don't think I said this in the beginning, but our program is hinged upon Maslow's hierarchy of needs. So really trying to build up that capacity for folks if they are open to making some changes in their lives, helping them to be able to do that because oftentimes we're forcing change on people when they're not ready, they're not willing, and they're most certainly not able to make those changes. So housing, food, shelter, safety, really trying to ensure that those things are in place and then focusing on some of the other things later with the person. And I got my first client on June 11th, I believe it was. And this was after um, 
after an overdose. And Lieutenant Trantham had actually seen the individual um, out in the community and asked the individual, and I'm trying not to use pronouns here, so forgive me if it becomes unwieldy when I narrate this, but asked the individual if they were interested in getting connected to some help. And so I was so excited to get my first participant and went through the assessment process and then started working on meeting some of their needs right away, crisis needs, help the person get a food box, and just really trying to ensure safety, did some overdose prevention, and the person wasn't really aware of how powerful fentanyl is, and so we talked a lot about that. And It's like an opportunity to educate. To do education, mm-hmm. yeah, and which prevention. is a key piece of harm reduction. So providing that. that's what I wanted to ask. Is it more like harm reduction? Like, because um, I guess my question is, is if I w- say I was to become a participant, mm-hmm. right? And I mean, I guess there's guidelines, right? Yes. So there's do you have to do like drug testing and okay? So that was my question. Mm -hmm. Um, So you're truly like meeting them where they're at. Like, hey, I understand that you want to quit, but I also understand it's hard and it's a struggle. But if you can, you know, if we can get you off the streets, you can. It raises the chances, right? Is Mm -hmm. that where I mean? Well, and even saying I understand you want to quit, a lot of folks. That, that's not where they're at. So when they are ambivalent, that's where we meet them with harm reduction. Yeah. That's the key right. point for that to come in, you know, and say, okay, I see you're, you're still using. How can I help you use in the safest way possible? Can I help you get access to sterile syringes and equipment? Can I help you dispose of them properly? Um, if you are... You know, in a priority population would be somebody who is at risk of overdosing or witnessing an overdose. If the person is in that position, can I help train you on naloxone and and teach you how to learn that, how to recognize an overdose, how to reverse an overdose? So really meeting that person where they're at. And we don't have sanctions in this program. We don't deny services. We don't charge anything. We don't coerce people. That was my next question. And it's, this is a program that, and an approach that not everybody is on board with. (laughs) And so this is not to criticize anybody for their own pathway. um, But I just heard Jaws hit the floor whenever he was like, how can we help you use in the the safest way possible? Because, yeah. You know, the people on Main Street don't understand that. And that's, you know, like the community buy-in. That's the people that we need to get to. I mean, what's the only requirement for recovery, people? You got to be alive. Mm-hmm. That's the only thing. It doesn't matter what. There's no other criteria that you have to have in place. For I mean, yes, we know that there's foundational stuff. And we want to help people find meaning and purpose and those things. But... I want to keep you people alive. <laughs> you can't do that if they're dead. That's now, right. I'm just going to be blunt so and say that. Um, so I'm in the business of 
health and safety and dignity for people. That's my focus. And so whatever I can do to mitigate any of these risks that you may encounter from using substances, Mm -hmm. mitigate any risks that you may encounter from engaging in sex work, mitigate any risk from engaging in any kind of what society would would deem as high-risk behavior. So what can I do to help ensure your safety, um, enhance your life and well-being, and build a relationship with you, build trust? And if you, at some point, decide that you want to make some changes in your life, how can I help you do that? Do you guys do, like... um like checks for uh, Hep C and things like that, yeah, and so then, okay, sorry. Go oh ahead. no, you go. Ahead. No, I was just gonna say, and if you do, then and they show up positive, then are there steps that can be taken towards confirmatory treat, testing treatment? treatment. And yeah. yeah, so it's really tricky with um, with Hep C. You know, we have some laws here in North Carolina that preclude people who are actively using um, from accessing treatment. Mm-hmm. And um, and I understand the spirit behind those laws is that this is very expensive treatment. We want to ensure that people are going to be compliant and adhere to the treatment protocol and follow through. And we want to ensure that the person doesn't, if they do go through the entire course of treatment, that they do not get reinfected and that sort of thing. So I recognize where people maybe at the table who were making those kinds of decisions, I recognize where that comes from, but I also recognize human rights and mm-hmm. access to things. And I mean, right now we've got a naloxone that's out there. It's called FZO and they're selling that for $4,000 a pop. Mm-hmm. That is, cr- that's criminal to me. That's criminal to me. It costs 15 cents to make this stuff and just a few dollars to make that particular apparatus. It talks to you. It's an auto injector, and somebody is profiting off That's of that. Shit. It's what it yeah. is. So it's shit. it is. I mean, and it is. It's. I will say it again. I cannot say it enough. It is criminal that somebody seeks to profit off of the suffering of other human beings, and I think, and I don't know how much it costs to make the medication for Hep C. But it's about ninety grand to go through a whole round of treatment. It's very Why is it that expensive? Yeah. Do, the does the any, same reason that right. Yeah. So I ask that more rhetorically. Mm-hmm. So that kind we're going to withhold. We're going to judge forever. the worthy and the unworthy. Who's worthy yeah. of treatment? Who isn't? I mean, and it's the same thing. I'm I'm going to get on my soapbox for a minute, but it's the same thing with people. There's this whole attitude about well, we should only administer naloxone three times, kind of a three. Three right. strikes and, and you're out. out. Right, yeah. And, you know, I've heard people say things like, well, what if the EMS was responding to a service call related to an opioid overdose, but there's someone over here, you know, and it's just like, yeah. why are we going to why are we gonna say that one person one is worthy point. and one person mm-hmm. is not? Right. And, and I know that we're socialized, and that's a whole part. That's just one aspect of stigma. You know, even having that kind of <laughs> thought about that is just one little piece of the way in which our language manifests into right. our belief set and our actions. And people get really 
Why are you going to help the addict over the non-addict? That's what it is. And here's the thing. It's like Mm -hmm. you're going to put this person's life on trial because they they used a substance to feel different and feel better when maybe a person over here, I don't know. I'm getting on my soapbox (laughs) here, but I hope that. We had a very interesting conversation about the percat loans. Gary Ann. We did. I <laughs> did. It was good. It was a very good conversation. I don't know if you want to get into that, Gary Ann, but. Well. And so, Percap's going to come up, and that's one of the reasons I brought it up. Percap's coming out next Monday, and it's always a critical time for our people. Mm-hmm. Um, the past couple of years, we've had several people over overdose and die. And so, we was talking about how they do monthly increments of the Percap loans. Mm-hmm. And I told Gary Ann, I said, as a way to stop the the overdoses during that time of the month, I think that you should have to pass a drug test, to which Gary Ann said. No, no. <laughs> because are you going to go and look at what kind of spending they did? Yeah. Did they buy things that they needed or wanted with that money? Mm-hmm. And what's that about? What, did they buy at the grocery store? Are we going to go and look at the groceries that you put in your cart with that per cap money? And there better not be anything in there with trans fat. (laughs) Nothing deep fried. Sugar? Nothing with sugar. I mean, I'm not. Sonic. So instead, how about instead of doing that, then why not having, if you take, I mean, when you kind of pick up your per cap or whatever, have a big thing of um, Narcan Narcan kits, Mm -hmm. you know, distributing. I mean, and this is systemic. We're not in this place because people have access to this per cap. We're in this place right. because yeah. of the generational demand, yeah. trauma, yeah. because of systemic issues and structural racism, structural classism. I mean, we didn't come to this place overnight, and we didn't come to this place because somebody gets a check once or twice a year. <laughs> 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 She's this right. is why she's gonna be on the board. Uh huh. <laughs> can you? Can, this is ask. why I need liability insurance. <laughs> no. Would you guys but. agree that she's comfortable now? Yes. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. She's king. By <laughs> <laughs> um. But you know, and I'm not here to tell anybody what is best for their community, and I'm not here to tell anyone what's best for their life. But it doesn't. It stopped me my tracks. It doesn't mean I don't have opinions or that I don't try to have my opinions rooted in evidence or rooted in in pragmatism and and things that are are really impacting people, people who have been suffering for a really long time. And um, so this is, I just wanted to throw this out just because we were talking about it, but I was told that... You don't have to be clean. I mean, I don't know. You said there were laws, North Carolina laws, about you know having to uh, be have sustained recovery time to get the Hep C treatment. But I was just recently told that you didn't have to, and that a lot of people don't know that. And there's a woman actually wanting to come and do a class with our Res Hope people, which I haven't got to schedule that yet which we need to but she's wanting to come talk to people about that and let them know that i think it was like six months or something like that that you had to have so there are laws on the books but it doesn't mean that 
everyone is enforcing them. So there still is access to treatment and there are hep C peer bridgers in a number of different communities. I'm friends with a girl in Madison County who's one, but, and I can't speak for every treatment provider, right? but okay, I'm yeah. sure that there are some who have a zero tolerance policy and it may just be from where they get their funding Mm-hmm. that would determine that. And then there are other treatment providers that are more accessible and don't have as many barriers right. to access the treatment. Um, so I hope if anyone tuned out that I can kind of retract that, not say that that's a blanket statement that you just can't access it at all. You can still access it, but I just, I think it's important to understand that that law is on the books in this state Right, there's, what's going on? I mean, yeah. So, and if we're not the only one. I think there's like probably thirty some different states. It's been a minute since since I looked at that legislation. So, yeah, there's some advocacy work around that too. Mm-hmm. And I mean, and you know, the thing is, is like if we think about, there's a lot of people who they really see syringe access as just enabling someone yeah, and just right. promoting it. Um, but when we really think about the ripple effect of not having access to that, we in North Carolina, we have five counties that the CDC has identified as um, being at risk. They're on a list of 220 counties in the in- entire United States. we got five in this state. We are at risk of um, an HIV and or hepatitis C or other hepatitis infections, viruses, um, very similar to what happened in Austin, Indiana, Scott County, Indiana in 2016, where they had an an outbreak um, that nowhere in the United States had seen anything like that since the 90s. And part of it was it happened. They were, epidemiologists were able to go into that community and trace where the outbreak originated and how the disease spread. And it was um, through um, a group of IV drug users and, you know, they didn't have access to sterile syringes. They didn't have access to health care. They didn't have access to getting tested on a regular basis. And so that's what harm reduction seeks to reduce is when we start engaging with folks, you know, I got trained early on to do rapid hep C and HIV testing. And when we start engaging with folks, that's not going to be the first thing I say to them. Yeah. No way. Right. But I'm going to start building a rep. I'm going to start building rapport with them yeah. and I'm going to help them access what they need. And if it's, if it's syringes, if that's what they need at that moment, then that's what they're going to get. If they need a winter jacket, then that's what I'm going to help them get. And then we can build this relationship. And then if and when they're ready, if they want to, if they want to see, then we'll do that. And if they want a confirmatory, then we'll figure out a way to get somebody to the health department and do that too. Um, but we've got, so three counties that are neighboring us, we've got Cherokee, Clay, and Graham. They're on that list. Burke County what two hours from here a little over yeah and then surrounding us we've got some counties in tennessee some counties in georgia 
people are transient. And I, if somebody's going to a neighboring county to get something <clears throat> to obtain a substance and then they return to their county of origin or residence, I mean, we've had several. This is stuff we need to we need to be talking about this, right? And if somebody has an HIV diagnosis, it costs over their lifetime about a half a million dollars to treat them over a lifetime. And if they don't have insurance, and that you know that becomes a ripple effect. And I don't really always like talking about fiscal responsibility because that's not really that's not what drives me, but. I recognize the importance in that. I mean, as a taxpayer, as a person who pays a premium every month, it's outrageous to have my health care coverage. And, you know, I recognize that all those things end up rippling out in the community. And, you know, you either want to sit over here and be attached to your ideologies or <laughs> open up and be open to some science, open to the empirical evidence. And there is a lot of it out there. It's also a tough sell <laughs> to some of these. It old, is a tough sell, old, yeah. Good old, and know, so good old boy again, network good old that's boy. been going for you know. Um, I mean, and I don't forever. like I said I don't want to come out and sound like I'm talking down yeah, or saying what any either. community you're needs. Not, but you're not at all. But you're totally on to something. Yeah. You know, it's very clear that you are. But then again, like what I see is a lot of specifically in the county that I reside in, which is not where this program is, is they talk the talk, right? They get on the public platform and they they lead the general public to believe, I'm going to just say it, they lead the general public to believe that they are invested in addressing it the most appropriate way that we need to. However, their actions don't necessarily align with what they say. Mm -hmm. And I don't, you know, how do you do that? You do that. How do you address, how do we address that as um, a community? Well, we address it by doing stuff like what we do with this podcast. We address it by electing officials who will do something about it. But guess yeah. what? We've been doing this. We've been living in this community. I've been living in this community for four or five years. We've had two or three election cycles. And guess what? They're not, the same cats are still, <laughs> the same cats are still in office. The same cats are getting reelected, right? So, like, I don't know. Did Duck Farmer get elected? No. <laughs> I, don't <know. laughs> I don't know who that is, but yeah. I suspect that was someone you had some faith in. Yeah. So, like, I mean, uh, I, I don't know what the answers are, you know, and like, yeah. I've, I've had conversations with, um, people in local law enforcement in these counties and they'll say one thing and tend to do another and then they'll there there's implied barriers that aren't necessarily there like instead of like <laughs> i'm the type of person i'm trying to say this as delicately as possible no, i know i'm the type of person that like when when um and I think uh, we all are when there is a barrier, when there is something that is preventing us from taking the most appropriate action, I immediately resort to finding a way around that. Right? Can I kick the door in? Right? Can I kick the door in? Not just, <laughs> but like, how do we address this? How, right. how you know, my, we pro we're 
it's in our DNA to solve problems, right? So like I instantly like it's how we how we function as human beings, right? But there's just like these there's so much resistance. Like if if, if we went down to the road here with some of these ideas that you're talking about, it would not the conversation wouldn't go very far. No. Like they would they would tell us what we want to hear. But then when we move along, things wouldn't happen. And so, like, how do we overcome that? Being the person who has been involved in, like, the political side of things, right? The educational and prevention side of things. What do I do? Pack my bags and move to Haywood County? I mean, what? Do not run. And don't, you know, like... um, if you don't, you're allowed, you can speak as freely as you want. Like, you don't have to answer that question. Like, uh, I don't know. I don't know if I can answer it, but I can say a, a few things about the process and that it, that it doesn't happen overnight. You know, if we are going to be true harm reductionists and say we meet people where they're at, we accept them where they're at, then that means I've got to do that for everybody, Mm -hmm. even people who (laughs) I may not agree with, but really try and kind of brick by brick to build those relationships, to build that trust, to have those kind of hard conversations and just recognizing that Again, getting back to change, it is not an event. It is a process. And, you know, the victories that NCHRC has been able to um, achieve did not happen overnight. They Mm -hmm. started as a very small grassroots organization, and I don't think they had any kind of funding to even pay themselves when they first started. It was all kind of underground, voluntary volunteering work and then they've been able to build this capacity and it's a beautiful thing I mean I wish I could say that that's in my history here with the nonprofit. I mean you know how's the saying go like I come as one but by way of many and I'm here tonight just as one person but all of this this opportunity that I I'm so grateful and honored to have is because of so many people who fought these hard battles, hard won victories, and they were able to get a standing order for naloxone. They were able to get syringe exchange program and the work, the work that was started to, before you. Yes. Even, they were mm-hmm. able to get a good Samaritan law passed. Yeah. And then, Robert Childs and Tessie Castillo, they are some of the originals and um, several other folks. They were able to go into South Carolina and Georgia and help them get some legislation passed. And, you know, NCHRC and the harm reduction community on a national level and arguably on an international level is kind of like a household name. Mm -hmm. And that's, gosh, I'm so proud to say that I'm, working for this organization um, who's done so many great things over the years and built this capacity and they've built these relationships and 
no. Um, and then it took, you know, this is not politically expedient work. I mean, people don't run a campaign on this kind of a platform. I'm going to make sure there's harm reduction. You know, this is something that... No, not yet. Um, <laughs> not yet. I mean, and I'm just saying, um, and that's not to sound... Because um, I am an eternal optimist. So I yes, love that you said yes. not yet. Um, but historically, people have not been having harm reduction as part of their platform um or you know even you know for sheriffs who who are those are still elected um positions um or you know working your way through the ranks of a police department up to captain or chief or lieutenant or detective um you know these aren't the sort of things that you kind of hunker down on and say well this is what I'm about but through time relationships have been built and you know chief um bill hollings said and robert childs they built a friendship a lasting relationship years yes. ago and i mean i i would be remiss if i didn't recognize all that hard work that was done years ago the right. courage that um chief hollings said had to to step out um of what was pretty systematic for his line of work um, and to say, okay, I want to look at this a little differently and this makes sense and this is an approach that I think we need to begin taking. And, you know, not for nothing, I mean, one in three law enforcement officers will have a needle stick at some point in his, her, their careers Mm -hmm. And then 25% of people, of law enforcement officers who have one stick, have another one. Astronomical numbers. Yes, and you think about what that costs in terms of productivity, taxpayer dollars. I mean, the prophylactic treatment. Last I looked, it was was going for a few thousand dollars, but there, I was told by an officer who had a needle stick injury a few years ago that... um, it was 15000 for his. And for nine months of his life, he had to go and get tested every month. And he kind of shrugged it off as this thing that wasn't really that big of a deal. And then I created a space for him to really kind of think about that. And I was like, wow, I think about how stressful that must have been for you every time you had to go and walk into that office and get that test to ensure that you didn't contract a communicable disease. Um, he was like, it was almost like I just saw these little light bulbs floating around. He was like, yeah, I was pretty stressful. <laughs> um, so, and not that I'm here to enlighten anyone, please don't get me wrong, but <laughs> I just felt like in that moment, even that was a moment to build a relationship with him, to give him a space to, you know, just to hold that space for him. And But... I'm kind of rabbit holing here, but I think that it just takes a lot of time and a lot of courage and relationship building one by one and really trying to find who are your champions because there were, there are still officers who don't necessarily find themselves aligning with a harm reduction philosophy or with lead And I've had a couple of them tell me that, and that's okay. 
that's not a personal thing for me. I'm not going to internalize that, but I'm going to try to work on building their trust and to help them to see that when they are encountering a person and they feel like they're just at their kind of wits end with what to do because maybe they've arrested this person in the past and then within 24 hours see the person out or, you know, and I'm just kind of giving some hypotheticals here. Right. And then maybe they might think about lead and see it as a viable option and trust that I'm a person who really does care and I'm going to do whatever I can to engage the person. Um, So, yeah, it's small successes and... I think I approached things in my early 20s. I was fiery and I was really interested in being right and just full throttle and in a lot of ways. And I know that I didn't approach people who have differing worldviews than mine in a way that was productive or effective. I know that. And I've, I look back on that time, again, thankful for, for that capacity to reflect. And I think, what, did you, what all did you accomplish during that time? And I did. I mean, it's not to say that all that was for nothing, but I'm, I'm just in a different space in my life now where I really, I'm just not interested in being right. I'm just interested in understanding and building bridges and building relationships and getting the work done. I mean, people are dying and we have to work together to address these complex issues. We have to find a way to set aside our ideals and our beliefs and really work in the interest of people. Caleb, when you went to, was it Raleigh Mm -hmm. for recovery coach training, Mm -hmm. you were able to do a ride along Mm -hmm. and you guys participated in post overdose outreach. Yeah. Yeah. Hope squad. The hope squad. Is that something you're familiar with, Gary? I'm not familiar with the hope squad, but I do do. overdose outreach Uh in Haywood Mm -hmm. County. And I am trying to build a, robust team of people to I know go knock on doors <laughs> yeah so what's the process Caleb how does it was, work yeah sorry um Caleb was someone who and he can still be a part of it and anybody who wants to be a part of it maybe I can volunteer yes that would be um that would be great if you Caitlin could do that come over there. um so officers in Haywood County when there is a 911 call service call for um an overdose there's a dual dispatch. So law enforcement officers and EMS are both dispatched and whoever arrives first, if it is in fact an overdose, sometimes it's not, there was a potassium issue a couple weeks ago with this older fella. And so, you know, fortunately it wasn't an overdose, but he got the care he needed. Um, but I digress. So they're dispatched, and whoever arrives first, they administer naloxone and help to revive the person, and um, it's public record, so it may sound like a HIPAA violation, but it's not. Um, but we want to ensure that we do not redisclose information, you know. Um, so anyway, so I'm informed, and within a couple of days... 
I try to get out there and make contact with a person. Unfortunately, a lot of folks are very transient and they may have overdosed in a home where they don't mm-hmm. reside on a regular basis. So it's challenging at times to connect with folks, but I've had some really great um, interactions and one particular individual I was able to connect and again, I don't want to use pronouns here, but I was able to connect four times with this person and this person's significant other. And the person is still, you know, actively using, um, but the person knows that there are resources out there that, that their life has meaning and value and that people in the community, strangers care about them. And, um, and there's a handful of others. Um, one person had actually overdosed and then got picked up on some warrants a couple days later. And I was able to connect with that person while they were in custody and then, met them on the day of their release and helped get the person connected to resources in the community, get a comprehensive clinical assessment. And they were interested in getting um, Suboxone, but the resources are pretty limited. And as I think most of us here know, that window of opportunity you know, the person is ready to make some changes, it can change. And so we didn't, we didn't get to follow through on all of, all of the things that they had initially set out to do. Um, but we're still in regular communication and I'm going to meet with this person later in the week and try to work on some housing stuff and just whatever way possible I can connect with people and connect them to resources and you know, when people are, if, if they become ready to make some changes and they know, they know they got a support person out there who can help them. But I've been doing this work with the sheriff's office and with Waynesville PD and my colleague, Jeremy Sharp, but I want to follow up more than just once. So I'm really interested in getting a post-overdose response team developed. And so I met with the priest of the Grace Episcopal Church, Jocelyn Schaefer, recently, and she's on board with coming out. We've got some volunteers here tonight who I would love, are interested. I would love we could, we could have a whole team set up yeah, in like a um, week. If that was okay. We both have had I some mean, peer support training. Not only that, I used to live over there. I got out of see. jail one time, met some girls in jail. <laughs> This is awesome. For anyone who can't see me, I'm like... She's pumping. Yes. People tuning in, like I know that there would be just... You could form a team of a dozen people that would be willing to do that type of work. Yeah. You you could. And so what I want to do with it, I want to make sure that we're not knocking just once. And right now, because we're kind of short staffed, if you will... It's hard to get back out there multiple times. And there are a handful of folks who I've been connecting with on a regular basis. But then there's a couple where I've only been out once yeah. and no one answered, but I left information in the door. I left naloxone there for them. Um, but I really want this team and I want to go, I want to find out um, 
every person who's overdosed in 2017. And I want to door knock. I want to try to find people. I read this study, you know, where I'm from in West Virginia. Um, it's, it's pretty much been the epicenter of overdose. Um, I mean, my community, my entire state was preyed upon in the mid-90s by these drug companies. And, yeah, I mean, Huntington, their high watermark for overdoses, one day they responded to 24 in one day. So I read this report, and the CDC had partnered with the Department of Health and Human Resources in um, West Virginia, and they looked at 830 people who had fatally overdosed in the year of 2016, which would be the last year we actually can access data. And um, they found all these different points of intervention where somebody could have or some system could have made an intervention. It's not to say that all 830 people would be alive today, but I think we'd be looking at some different numbers mm -hmm. had we had some things in place. 71% of these people um, who had fatally overdosed had, had contact with emergency medical services in the 12 months prior to their death. 56% of them had been incarcerated. 91% of them were on the prescription monitoring controlled substances wow. thing. Um, I want to say that 75% of them had Medicaid. So there's all these different places in the year prior to their overdose. Where somebody could have been interceded. Where somebody could have, mm -hmm. could have done something. And, and we may never know all of the conversations that were had or what was really happening with that person. But, I mean, I know for sure the 20 people who I've lost, I mean, they weren't getting, people weren't knocking mm -hmm. on their doors and they weren't getting access to things. Um, when someone overdoses, like reduction services. when someone overdoses in Haywood County, um, prior to you going out, and meeting with them or attempting to meet with them, are they sent home with Narcan automatically? Is that no. a part of the, any type of program? No, and I'm working on that steadily. And I met with some social workers at Haywood Regional Hospital recently, and we're trying to figure out how to navigate the hospital regulations and what we can do back but to this topic we did yeah we did set up um, we did set up um, <laughs> we started a conversation I should say instead mm -hmm. of we set up but we started a conversation about how I can be a point person when somebody has been transported there after an overdose if the person wants a warm handoff they can call me and I can come out there because a lot of times, you know, that discharge planner is just trying to put a bunch of pamphlets and things in the person's hand, and mm -hmm. and then they're leaving. I mean, my very first referral, as I said, that person was walking home from the hospital after an overdose on foot. So, yeah. Why? There's a lot of gaps, yeah. and we just wrote a grant, and this is what I was trying to get Caleb um, to apply for. We wrote a grant, and it's going to be 
they're going to contract with NCHRC, but it's going to kind of, I don't know all the logistics of it, but it's through the health department in Haywood County. And it'll be for a peer support specialist um, who can, and the person doesn't have to be a certified peer support specialist, but it's our hope that they will have some lived experience and be able to go out and connect with people and um, do that outreach. And so we're working on getting um, an MOU with EMS and with the hospital. So if someone is transported there um, and they're open to um, connecting with us, you know, of course they would want to sign a release of information and that sort of thing. So we're working on that steadily. But at the very least, I just would love to know that if someone overdoses, that they then have naloxone in their possession. Yeah. I mean, that should be like automatic. So that that's did, what we do. I mean, I leave it in doorways yeah. if someone doesn't answer. But I'm not getting every. I'm not getting contacted for every single overdose in mm-hmm. the county. So there's a gap there, yeah. Yeah. and um, I want to ensure that we close that gap and that we just get to connect with people. Um, one thing I've heard you say. One too. thing I've heard you say a lot tonight is the soft handoffs. When you're connecting these individuals to resources in the community, is the soft handoff. But you've also kind of touched on in what I kind of envision the biggest challenge to a program of this nature is the gaps in the resources that are available in a rural community like ours. Like the, these other lead programs that are in larger metropolitan areas that do have access to um, some pretty amazing resources that we just generally don't have. So you talked about meeting with a client and an individual in assessing their needs um, based off of Maslow's hierarchy. Like what? Where are the gaps? Where are the opportunities for other grassroots organizations like Res Hope, like some of the stuff that we're doing with NC Raw? Where can somebody come in and kind of fill those gaps? Is it housing? Is housing. It, okay, so let's let's go there. <laughs> let's go there. Like, what okay. would that look like? Like, because this, I had this conversation with Lori Clancy in her office today for like two hours. We were just like, the lack the, of the minds were just rolling. So like, what? And she and I talked about mm-hmm. that too the other day and the lack of affordable, stable housing is, I mean, it's just non-existent and transitional housing is almost non-existent. And I come from a housing first approach yeah. because I recognize Maslow's hierarchy of needs. We cannot expect people to change until they have the capacity to make some changes. And if someone is sleeping on the streets or someone's returning to that tent or they're returning to a home that's not safe for them or safe for their recovery or safe for them to make changes, then we can't expect to see people make lasting changes. Um, And so there's... I There's the, one shelter in the community. They conduct your analysis. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I've got yeah. folks who they're just, they're not going to be able to pass. I don't want to say pass. They're going to test positive um, for your analysis. So and then how, mu- how long there. do they have to wait before they're able to come back? Um, to attempt to come back to a place like that? 
You know, I don't know Not exactly, sure. but yeah. I just, and I recognize that there are, I'm trying to figure out how to say this the right way, that there are, um, there are reasons why people have these parameters in place. And I understand where that comes from, but I also would really like to, to have some of those tough conversations and say, so what can we do about this? How can we, how can we start to think a little differently about this and that and alternatives and alternatives. Like if he doesn't qualify, screen in here where does he screen mm-hmm. in? where does he screen in and so yeah there's just in affordable and stable housing there's a shortage of it it's across a nation and i was watching a documentary on thanksgiving called over criminalized on youtube it's only like a 25 minute documentary they're talking about um they covered like the three areas that we've kind of hit on tonight homelessness um leech program and mental illness and in the homelessness portion of the documentary they were they hit on a city and i'm not exactly sure what city but like we all know like in many larger scale uh, metropolitan cities like it's essentially become illegal to be homeless Mm -hmm. meaning like if you are homeless and living on the street if you panhandle we're gonna arrest you just just for sleeping Mm -hmm. on the street or sitting down on the sidewalk like may portland may yeah Yeah. areas like that they put you in jail like immediately no Mm -hmm. questions asked and like you go to jail they eventually get let out and then literally arrested like the same night you were let out of jail for just for being homeless so there was one city and i do not remember what where it was located but they decided to do something like what you're describing. And they like kind of took a old... In con- Salt Lake City, maybe? It, Salt Lake City. That yeah. was it. They took they're like really a, big on housing first yeah. out there. Housing first. They took like a big condominium and they decided to just provide this housing and case management. So you get free housing and case management. And what they, through research and whatever, they, they learned that it was costing them essentially $20,000 per individual on the street per year. So an individual on the street per year for being homeless, it was costing the city, the local right. jurisdiction to lock them up, to, lock them up, to do all that stuff. It was costing them, it was costing them $20,000 a year. It cost them $7,000 a year to give them a place to live right. in case management. And then guess what that, guess what happened just by putting a roof over their heads, almost 20 to 30 percent of those individuals started to figure life out on their own they didn't even need all the other stuff they didn't need the um they found jobs they found you know they started to live their lives they didn't need all those other things just by putting a roof over their head Mm -hmm. now the rest of the crew they had a case manager that could connect them with additional resources and get them some substance abuse treatment or get them some um employment assistance or whatever it was that they needed shore up those strengths yeah but it started with just the housing the little thing and like around here like i'm not familiar with haywood county um but just in this local area like i don't know if it's because of this type of like police kind of enforcement but i don't see a lot of individuals in the public eye you know what I mean? Like they're around, but it's not, 
I don't know if it's like like that the stigma and the fear and they're not like I think there's for sure people who are experiencing housing insecurity and yeah. experiencing homelessness and you know they may be able to double up with a friend or family mm. member for a certain period of time and kind of right. move about from house to house yes. if you will. Yeah. I know there was recently a little setup near the Frog Level District in Haywood County in Waynesville where there were several tents and um, they just, you know, they pushed that out. And so it's just... Um, Is this something that's like on their radar of like addressing housing? Yes. And there's actually... Um, the county is approaching a... Gosh, I don't want to misspeak and call it something that it's not, but there is um, some sort of a community land trust um, ordinance or policy mm -hmm. or something that's happening at the county level, and there's been some opportunity for public comment and people to kind of weigh in um, because this land trust will effectively um, alter and determine the shape, I should say, the trajectory of housing for the next 30 years or so in Haywood County. And I think every community probably has this sort of thing at some point in their political landscape, if you will, um, to determine what are we going to do with land and are we going to build more you know, real estate? Is it going to be like what's going to happen? How are we going to use land and are we going to ensure that the units are affordable. Are we gonna um, are we gonna provide for um, single unit or family unit, multi family unit kind of thing? Um, but honestly, I mean, I look at housing as like, you know, there's some solutions out there. I mean, how many of you have been on an interstate where you pass a wide load truck and then you see a house that's in pieces? Yeah, dude. Coming down the interstate. Those things only take a few months to put together. And they're Hard. reasonably and affordable. They're reasonably affordable. Yeah. We've got tiny houses. That's, that's what I was about to say. I'm all Those about tiny houses. houses. Banks yeah. will not give you a loan on a tiny house. You know why? Because you can move it. It's no. not a house. But why? Because you don't have to wait 30 years to pay it oh, off. Oh, yeah. They want yeah. that They want that they interest. Want that interest. Yeah. So, and I have a friend who just built a tiny house for $10,000. No, he did a lot of the labor he was able to repurpose some wood and different materials to build the home it's beautiful but i just i just i think about the political will you know where is the political will to ensure that people's needs are met and i mean i just want to say that like there's so many social issues that are yeah, no, was, influencing where people are at and 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 effectively keeping people in their place. Yeah. I feel like we're talking you know? in circles here. Yeah. We like, are, and like, I know I keep yeah. kind of coming well, no, back not, to the same it's thing. Uh, it's the but, conversation, but and, it, yeah. and it's I mean, not even tonight. It happens every week. It's not just tonight. Right? It's the same old, same old. And I'm sorry, I'm sore, man. <laughs> and I, I, you know, I recognize that that the the disease model propelled us, I mean, in leaps and bounds to helping reduce stigma and helping people to understand 
what's happening for an individual who has a substance use disorder and they're in a problematic state with that. Um, but I think that part of that still, it goes back to that individual and we're not looking at all the social issues that are compounding what's happening at a neurobiological level. Let's look at what is happening on a sociopolitical level that's influencing that behavior Mm -hmm. and compounding it and people are finding themselves entrenched in it. And I mean, housing is healthcare. Yeah. (laughs) It's healthcare. Absolutely. (laughs) But we struggle with that. But we struggle with that, (laughs) you know? So like, what does health mean? I mean, define health, define health in terms of where we're at, but I could just, you know, I think it's clear that I can just get on. I can just bounce from soapbox to soapbox. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That's fun. For better or for worse. But I, I hope that somebody asked where my heart was, I think at the beginning of this, is that what you asked me? Where's your heart? And I said, right here, but no, that wasn't me. He's got a mouthful of ice. Don't mind that. Um, but I hope it's clear where it's, where it's at, you know, but yeah, I forget what the question was, was, but the barriers, housing is a huge barrier and then being able to access resources and treatment. Mm -hmm. I mean, we have, so that goes back to the healthcare and funding and costs and, you know, we mm -hmm. did not expand Medicaid in this state. Other states that did have seen a direct impact yes. in the overdose rates yes. declining yes, in, they have. A, in a very short period of time. Yes, they a have. A high number, like f- up to 50% wow. in some fifty percent in some areas, a 50% decline in less than a year just by expanding Medicaid. Yeah. So we didn't expand Medicaid, and now we're at this opportunity, and you can weigh in as a, the public can weigh in until November 30th on the... Uh, what are they calling it for our Medicaid? They're, I don't want to say revitalization, but it's, it's, you know, a lesson in semantics. Um, Sorry, DHHS, but I'm just going to keep it real that it's still not enough. And they, one of their priorities, I was at a summit a couple, well, actually it was a month ago. And there was a person there speaking about this new and improved these changes to Medicaid and this person said that one of the priorities is housing. And of course my hand shot up and I said, y'all, we got money for housing. We got resources. And if there was kind of this circuitous response where I just was kind of, my mind was still reeling when the person stopped talking. I was like, I still don't know. It's no, it's just not enough. So Housing is a major what, issue. What are Accessing the, treatment. What are the um, arguments against expanding Medicaid other than just financial greed? <laughs> I mean... I'm going to be direct. Yeah, man. that's a pretty... <laughs> yeah. That's I, it? I, I've not heard one that's viable. And I've okay. not heard one that let me... Because we talked earlier tonight about you maturing as an adult and being able to see things Mm -hmm. from the other side of the argument and being able to understand and somewhat reason, whether you agree with somebody or not, reason with them. 
I think sometimes people really get caught up. I think we're very socialized in the Western part of the world to want immediate gratification and to have these really kind of myopic, our scope is myopic. We're not looking to the future. We're not looking at the ripple effect or the underbelly of this piece of legislation or how this might impact people 10 years from now or 20 years from now. I think people are really focused on the here and now, and I'll, I'll argue for the here and now for a lot of things. You know, I'm a firm believer in mindfulness practices. and mm-hmm. But I think when it comes to legislation and policy, we really need to be thinking beyond the here and now and what is this going to look mm-hmm. like for people. And I just don't, I don't think people recognize some of that stuff, you know, especially when they think about, I think it's only a, like 10 cents for a sterile syringe. And what did we just say earlier? 90,000 to treat hepatitis C, 500,000 to treat someone over their lifetime who has HIV. So, but in that myopic field of vision, you may have somebody thinking, well, I'm not going to encourage substance use or it's I don't just want. Enabling. You're so. Just- helping the problem yeah i think it's really trying to see beyond ourselves mm-hmm. <laughs> and on just a quick google search doctor uh doctors for america promoting the expansion of medicaid in the state of north carolina the medicaid expansion will save north carolina 65.4 billion dollars oh, over the next eight years as other safety net programs become less necessary. Expanding Medicaid in North Carolina will create create 23,000 high-paying permanent jobs. Really? Because the ac- people are gaining access to care. Um, and the total economic impact of the Medicaid expansion is estimated at $1.4 billion. Um, it says that it... If they do so, 650,000 North Carolina residents will have access to Medicaid and health care services who don't currently have it today. So, I mean, that's just like in a matter of like two minutes of just like looking. I don't see an argument against it. I'm so glad you looked that up because that needs to be broadcasted. People need to know those numbers and... Yeah, so check out doctorsforamerica.org. That's where that information came from. And, like, do your research. But mm, I think that it's kind of a no-brainer. The reason why I asked you about that was because um, last week in the New York Times, they were talking about Dayton, Ohio. Are you familiar? Thank you, Tatiana Vereen. Thank you. So good to meet you My man, Demetrius. Let me get the Instagram one more time. Tati's vision photography. She came in and took some photographs of us this evening. Um, so check out her Instagram. She's got some badass shots that she's been taking. You're amazing. You're amazing. Good Thank night. you. Good night. So good to meet you. Dayton, Ohio, right? That was one of the communities that um, reduced overdose rates significantly in less than a year. Um, and that was one of the things that they did was Ohio did expand Medicaid. But just so far this year, 
in comparison to 548 overdose deaths last year, there's only been 250, a 54% decline. Wow. Right. So the question is, what did they do? Right. You're talking about Dayton, Ohio, pretty somewhat populated community. Yeah. Off the top of my brain, I would guess it's probably similar in comparison to Asheville, if not maybe a little larger. I don't know. I'm just guessing. Asheville, I think, has 80,000. 80,000? 80, maybe. Okay. Um, but the number one, the first thing they did is Medicaid expansion, hugely increased access to treatment. Hmm. So by giving access to Medicaid, individuals were able to get into treatment. The second thing that's kind of in, in that goes in line with that, and it kind of goes with what you're doing on the regular that I think might be something worth entertaining collectively for all of us is um, in Dayton, they would host every other month, they would host a dinner called Conversations for Change. And it, it's an opportunity for people, current drug users, to show up and have a meal and sit down at the table with treatment providers and people who are legitimate resources in the community. So it's an open invitation. It's like every other month, not too regularly, but enough where like somebody like Res Hope could or NC Raw could pay the pay the bill for the food. You know, we provide food. We invite all the all the resource providers and treatment providers there and just create those relationships. Have those conversations. That's pretty much like what our That's what our you're doing. Thanksgiving. Right? Yeah. yeah. I mean we well, not only was we just wanting to pass out plates, we were wanting to sit down and have conversations, but you know, to get a team of that a dozen at the last meeting they had a dozen resource tables set up at this event. And they're inviting they're not just they're not inviting people in recovery like us. They're mm -hmm. inviting people who are using yeah, drugs. Absolutely. Like and well, you guys did that. Y'all did uh, that. Uh, can no, nah, we need to go ahead and give a praise report. Yeah. We haven't even talked about that. I mean, that's pretty significant. We planned on I, I planned to have enough food for hundred and fifty people. And that's including, you know, volunteers, whoever came out, families, whatever. And we ended up having over 300, over 300. 300 approximately 300 people came that signed in. There are some people that didn't sign in. And um, <laughs> it's wild. <laughs> we had enough food. We actually have food left over. Uh, people brought extra food. Um, and there's a lot of people that was experiencing homelessness and a lot of people that were, you know, haven't found recovery yet. Or there was a girl, she just got out of prison that morning and come mm -hmm. straight to our dinner that evening. And, you know, we, they didn't just come and, and get their plate of food and go. It wasn't like, oh, it's a free dinner. I'm going to go grab a free coat and they a free dinner. Loved. They stayed and they sat. And, you know, the big thing was that we noticed was, like we knew a, a barrier for people was going to be transportation. So we, Caleb went and talked to Cherokee Transit and they agreed they were, they wanted to help with what we were doing and provide it free transportation. And it was wow. like late that night mm -hmm. at the last transit bus, you know, uh, I think it was Bianca <laughs> come in and was like, transit's out here for whoever's needed to ride home in a big group. Group of people <laughs> jump on transit, you know, and you they know, didn't even have phones. They was borrowing people's phones to call transit to come to the dinner and head home. <laughs> and, you know, we just got to, to 
have conversations with them and you know that's that's the type of stuff that we talk we do in our in our classes and stuff mm-hmm. like when we say when we put on our posts like we're world changers you know we're building leaders that's what we uh, empower the people that work with mm-hmm. us to do is you know not to just s- sit there and ask those closed-ended questions but to ask the open-ended questions and to have conversation with them and you know it's not like well do you want to go to treatment like first you know it's just showing them love and being able to have those conversations like you said and what would it look like you know if we do get some a lot more uh people like that from that work in various treatment places just to have those cathartic conversations you know yeah the 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 article goes on to kind of cover you know everything else that they're doing in that community and the only other things that they're doing is exactly what is already taking place here. The only missing piece to that puzzle, to that fifty-four percent reduction in overdose, is healthcare. The healthcare, yeah. Everything else is doing access to Narcan, Narcan being readily available and everywhere. Check right. We're right. we're doing that. Um, more support for people when treatment ends, like community-based resources, housing, but like just like that peer peer supports and fellowships check. We're doing that. I would say fairly well in comparison to other parts of the country. Um, and the last thing was ready for this police and public health workers actually agree in working together Mm. on things. Check. Right? So you got your bases, you got your bases covered. Not us. It's a choice. It's a choice. That's why I smiled. We've been having these tribal action plan committees now. Hold that hope for you. It's going to happen. It is going to happen. I mean, we just just got to keep inviting them, Mm -hmm. you know, and I mean, eventually they're going to show up, but we've been having these tribal action plan committees and basically that's what it is. All the resources from the reservation are coming together and forming this plan and it's data driven. And so we've had um, law enforcement show up the first time, and then it was like, you know, you could just tell that you invited not them there but yet. You invited them, and they, they, they come send back? they send emails out every every time, you know. Um, well, it will happen. We love them anyway. You're you're persistent. Yeah. Yes. You're persistent. Yeah. Right. Yes. And you're yeah. you're. You we live. got the prosecutor on our side, though. The tribal yeah. prosecutor yeah. is a well, huge that's advocate. Huge. That's kind of what's happening in Buncombe County right now. And they're really working towards getting a diversion program. They don't know if it will be branded as LEAD or what it will look like, but they've got some of the key players. Well, the chief, I spoke to him at our community uh, dinner the other night, and um, he's wanting to go to see the Hope Squad, and I told him about what y'all are doing and everything, and we need to, you know... He, yeah, I'm whatever, sure he'd love to come over there and see what y'all Whatever I can do to help if it's getting on the phone with somebody and yeah, talking a little bit about what we're doing out here or coming over to Cherokee and meeting with folks. I don't have all the answers and we're just getting started. I don't know, but, you're pretty. You got, but you I got. think we've got, gosh, we've got such a foundation to, to mm-hmm. be able to do this work. Um, and that didn't, you know, like I said, it didn't happen overnight. I mean, there's a lot of, a lot of people who had courage, and a lot of people who just opened their minds up to something else and said, "All right, what are we going to do to get in front of some of these problems and not be looking back?" I mean, 
I hate to say mm. it, but I feel like West Virginia is now looking back and saying, what has happened in the last 25 years? And we got a friend up there I was telling you about Tim Craft. He's doing their so overdose rate in his in the county he lives in has um, declined by over fifty percent from uh, seven sixteen to seventeen. He's out just you know doing some yeah he's doing some amazing work. We got to see him last night, but he's from Parkersburg. I yeah. would love to meet him. Yeah, there's a couple really good documentaries out there. West Virginia. It's on Netflix. One's called Farm One or something. Yeah. Yeah. Recovery Recovery Boys. Boys. That's good. Starstruck. I did get Starstruck. (laughs) I met one of the guys who was in that film, and he is now working as a peer support specialist, I believe, at a place in Morgantown, West Virginia, which is where the town where I went to college. And I've Ran into him at this little festival in my hometown, and I was like, Oh my goodness. And then I went up to him and I said, I don't want to do this. I want to harass you, but I told you. I still okay, little boy. That's pretty cool. One of them Um, became a recovery coach, didn't they? Yeah, yeah, that's the guy. And he actually, so I gave him my card. And he actually reached out about a month ago. I was in New Orleans <laughs> at the awesome. National Conference for harm reduction, and I missed his call. And I saw West Virginia show up on my work phone. And nobody, <laughs> no one knows my phone number in West Virginia except for this guy. And um, he called and left me a voicemail, wanted to know how things are going down here in North Carolina and how we are utilizing the role of a peer support specialist and I called him back. I got his voicemail. So we're playing a little phone tag. But I'm hoping at some point when I go home and I have a little bit of time maybe to just sit down with him and chat about the work we're doing, learn from him, you know, what's working up there for them. And, um, yeah, if there's anything that we're doing down here that can be translated and transferable in West Virginia, I would love for that to happen because – yeah, there's a lot of heartache there. You've played an instrumental role in a short period of time in this local community, like initiating, hold on, <laughs> initiating <laughs> that change, right? We talked about how it's a process. Um, where I come from, there's there's a beginning, a middle, and an end to everything, right? You've played an instrumental role in all the in the beginning of this monumental thing. In a perfect world, where does this story end? Oh. Well, I am. Um, wow. <laughs> um, humbled that you would say I'm playing an instrumental role. I, you know. Like I said, I come as one, but by way of many. We all do. I think that was a Maya Angelou quote as well. (laughs) Love that woman. Um, Gosh, in a perfect world. You know, I want to see, I want to see people who are. Okay, so I envision a world where the pathologizing and the language of suffering is transformed and there's resiliency and there's 
recovery and there's prevention and healing and um, I want to live in that kind of world and I want to live or I want to be a part of the work that advances um, the health, safety, and dignity of people who use drugs and I want to see people who are housing insecure or experiencing homelessness. I want to see people housed. I mean, I'm somebody and I will never, I don't want to not recognize my own privilege because several of my, the ways in which my social identities intersect provides me with a level of privilege that a lot of people will never know. Um, but I did lose my home when I was young. I mean, I've been uprooted. I would move out of my mom's house all the time when I was growing up and then left my house after she died. And, you know, I've not really had a real sense of home for a long time. I've always felt kind of one foot in, one foot out. So on some level, despite having a roof over my head, like always having a house, so to speak, but not really knowing what home always meant or looked like or felt like, I think in a really small way, I I understand what folks, um, a little bit of what they're experiencing. And so that's really important for me is to see people to get housed and, and, to, and to find a home and to be able to transcend survival mode and, and to enter into a space where they're thriving. And that doesn't have to mean... 100% abstinence from all substances. I want to see people's relationships to their substance or substances change in a way that is for their health and well-being, that is for the health and well-being of the community at large. Um, you know, by no means am I sitting over here trying to advance the continuance of substance use, but I just want to say that, you know, that may not be you know, that may be the metrics of recovery for a lot of people, but that may not be the metrics of recovery or success, um, the way in which we measure somebody's success or for everybody, if that makes sense. Um, you know, I think we live in a, I think we live in a land of a lot of broken promises, and I've touched on a handful of those. I think that We've got this really beautiful constitution. <laughs> We've got this really beautiful preamble and these ideas and these ideals in America, but we have really fallen short of delivering on a lot of those things. And and I've been seeing that since I was a little girl, you know. I mean, there's still kids in this country in the 21st century. They don't know where their next meal is coming from and if you followed I know I'm rambling here no, that's but a, I mean you're if you followed that teacher strike in West Virginia which I'm mm. so proud of I mean it gives me it gives me chills it when I think I'm so proud of those teachers for standing up and they didn't just stand up for their own salaries they stood up for the salaries of law enforcement officers for the cooks for the custodians in those schools but before they went out on strike every day, they were packing lunches for kids. They were ensuring that the kids who couldn't be in the classroom and get their breakfast or their lunch that day could have a meal. I don't want to live in that. I mean, I want to live in the kind of world where there is compassion like that. 
But where that's the reality that that shouldn't be even a conversation that, shouldn't that we're even having. Be a conversation yeah. we're having uh-huh. in the twenty first century. Mm-hmm. With the but amount so, of resources that are accessible right. to our society. You yeah. know, we got people, I mean, I'm working with someone right now who's sleeping in a tool shed. That place isn't even fit for rats. So I just, yeah, whatever I can do to be a support person, and I know these things are not going to happen overnight, but, you know, I really, I want to get involved in, in housing, I want to, I don't know what that's going to look like. And I, I keep finding myself, I'm, I'm always doing this. Just keep finding something that you're really passionate about and say yes. And then, mm-hmm. but I want to make sure that I'm, that I'm prepared for the work and that I've got it in me to, to do the work and advocate or whatever. But yeah, I think that's going to be a huge piece to helping people. Circling um, back. Yeah. And it's like we are we finally live in a in a time, I should say. There are actually some pretty good jobs in Haywood County right now. There's um, you know, there's the paper mill and there's um Giles chemicals and there's mm-hmm. um good paying jobs. I'm not saying that people are gonna find meaning and purpose doing this work, but they may be able to make a living where they can find their meaning and purpose and other things in their lives. <laughs> They can, you know, develop their hobbies and their whatever, their spiritual foundation, and they can, you know, help their children thrive and that sort of thing with some of these wages. But um, there's a shortage of of workers right now, of people who are even able to be job ready. And I think it's really systemic. And... I mean, I've got, I get these emails all the time about these job fairs and there's a lot of folks I'd love to see them be able to get employed like that or, or, you know, whatever they've got to do to get their needs met. Um, but everything that you just described circles back to a conversation that we had last week and also a conversation that we had earlier this evening before the show started. I'll ask you this now, now that we've laid it on the table, had a moment to reflect a little bit. Are you the ripple or are you the wave? (laughs) I think I'm just a little ripple. Um, Are you being humble here? (laughs) No, I think think I'm being real. Um, I... I had this little saying I used to say in my early 20s where... I didn't want to just be a drop in the ocean. I wanted to be the ocean. And I'd say it very emphatically. And, you know, as I'm saying it now, maybe even throw a cuss word in there to, Come on. for emphasis. <laughs> um, and then I'm... Now we're talking. You know, and I think that young people, gosh, I'm so inspired by young people because they're so fervent and mm-hmm. on fire. They're just so passionate. And I think I had a lot of that in me. And I still do. I don't ever want to lose sight of that. But it's tempered a bit. And as we get older, unfortunately, we do, we come face to face with a lot of realities. And we realize that these ideals, at some point, we have to reconcile them with what's real, what's real, you know, what can we actually accomplish? And so, 
achievable but, goals. Yes. Mm-hmm. And figuring out how to work together and build bridges to achieve these things and not just staying on our own, you know, not over here spinning my wheels thinking I'm right, I'm right, you're wrong, you're wrong, mm-hmm. and really not getting anything done, but just hating on each other. <laughs> so I say all that, that I think there was a time when I thought in that way. And now I'm just, I just want to shine my light, my little corner of the world and have my little ripples and impact people. Um, You know, in small ways, I think I'm, gosh, I would love to, to be a wave. There's a, that's what you asked me, but that is what I asked you. I don't know if the old, the old Zen quote, I don't know who said it, but the old Zen quote, like freedom is when the wave discovers he's the ocean. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, that? and I can't do any of this on my own. <laughs> I mean, like I said, I'm standing on a lot of shoulders mm-hmm. and I'm standing with a lot of people alongside me. And even, you know, people like my sisters, my family, <laughs> I mean, I'm so dreamy and I'm okay being that person. Um, but I, I'm allowed to be that person cause I have all these people who have been holding ground for me for a long time. Mm-hmm. So I could go out there and while out and, you know, that dreamy be person, poetic and that dreamy, dreamy person is the one that travels the world, <laughs> right? That dreamy by person herself. yeah, by herself, like that dreamy <laughs> person is the one that takes advantage of these experiences and opportunities. All right. This wouldn't be so, NC raw. You wouldn't be at the table with Mr. Kayla McCoy and myself, if we did not ask you about personal goals, what's next for Gary Ann personally, not professionally, not leads program, harm reduction, housing, all the amazing things that you're doing every day. I think I told you about my vision board that I have. Um, so it's really important for me to, I've been flirting with a spiritual dimension in my life for a long time. And I go through these periods where I'm disciplined and I'm really focused and I meditating and I'm feeling good about things and feeling grounded. But then I, you know, life gets in the way and I think it's easy for us to our prioritize, we can move our priorities around on the list and what we end up prioritizing sometimes is not what we know is best for us or what we know is going to hold us all together to be able to do the work we do. But yeah, so I really, and nobody can, no one can make me do any of that. It's got to be my, I have to be driven to do it. And I am, and I, I'm welcoming winter as a space to give me that time and to slow me down a bit to to really get right with myself and and to get grounded again and develop that spiritual dimension. So that's really important for me. Um, and then I really want to get back to my roots and I want land and I really want to... Um, I want to put food on my table that I've grown and I do that. I have a garden and I've done that off and on for years. There's been a couple of years in my adult life where I've just not been grounded enough to put anything in the ground. 
whatever you get that ready means. to come to Bryson and Silva, though, but, right? And check out some of that. Remember you talking about, yeah. you don't know if Asheville's kind of. So, yeah, I'm getting outpriced <laughs> in Asheville. You and are. Plus you it's, totally are. It's, and I'm, it's outgrowing me. I mean, and mm-hmm. I've got a restless spirit. But I think what I'm really focused on now is like, I can dispel that restlessness through travel, but I want to know home. I really do. And I am determined to know and feel that and experience that in a real way. And um, so getting some land and really rooting myself down, because I've spent so much of my life renting and just kind of hopping from one lease to the next. And it's been great. I mean, you know, being a, a renter has been good for me, being single and not wanting to fix the toilet, but just calling the land person, landlady or land lord and saying, can you call the plumber? <laughs> or, you know, <laughs> but I mean, those are all, like, I want all those skills. Yeah, YouTube can fix and, that stuff, Yeah, <laughs> but I do, you know, and I did, I actually, I did construction for a little while. I love labor. So I'm, um, where do, I, where do I find these pictures? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I've got some on my phone, yeah. actually. Okay. Oh, yeah. Um, I restored this century-old home. It was, oh, my gosh, it was crazy. I had all this coal dust. I actually, I mean, I got, like, poisoned from it. I was coal. sick for, like, three or four days. And I couldn't figure out what it was. It was like I couldn't eat anything. Everything was kind of my gag reflex. And I'm like, oh. You inhaled all that coal dust for days, <laughs> you know. But um, so yeah. So getting back to what I'm really saying here is, yeah, I want land, and um, and I want to share my life with somebody, and I got that on my vision board, and I love to write. Um, you laughing at me? I'm not laughing at you. I'm not laughing at you. I'm not laughing at you. Any single like men out yeah. there? No, <laughs> just kidding. Um, but anyone interested in growing some food? Um, Let's but, talk about recipes. <laughs> oh, I love to cook. Yeah, yeah. I love to cook and bake, and I really most of my food is plant based. So I really love mm-hmm. that. Adding that element to the art of cooking and baking is really cool. Like especially I, to have like something that's traditionally meat and make it vegan. Yeah. That's I good. knew that Caleb would pop on your vision board. Yeah. What, the plant-based stuff? No, just the vision board in general. Yeah. Oh. So and I got my writing on there. I've, You know, I've been working on a book, and I table it, and sometimes I won't pick it up for a year or two, but I'm also trying to realize there's other things I enjoy writing. I've been writing a lot of songs lately, and I'm working on, I call it my Outlaw Country album. <laughs> Wow, that's pretty cool. Taylor can play the banjo. She can. She can. So I learned to pick a little bit this summer, but oh goodness, I don't play banjo, but I can do a couple little things from there. But yeah, we should get together and play play a few songs, and that's like do a Res Hope, yeah, banjo, (laughs) banjo, whatever. Yeah, banjo picking night. We'll have to get together and play she some music. She sings now. She's uh, doing worship at church. So. Kaylin? That's awesome. I sing a little bit, but it's 
My friend Emily is an amazing singer, so whenever we get together and play music, I just kind of listen. So you we write the music and, break and then... Bread. Break uh, bread. We, we have to do that. I, I know. Real. I ain't even going to lie. I was a little jelly that I didn't get to come have coffee. Well, we'll just make that happen. <laughs> so maybe we can do that next week or something. Yeah, so I'm not. I work during the morning, so... Well, we'll figure I'll it out. I'll be starting in... Monday, I'm going to come out Monday to the job, reservation. Yeah, let's go eat. Well, yeah, she's wanting us that. to show her around and everything. I would love that. When you, you need to introduce us to some of these Indian tacos and fry bread I keep hearing about. We're getting her to do We need to do a fundraiser. Why are you looking at me like that? We're going to do a, a, a fundraiser. Oh. Uh, oh, I'd love to you guys there. can eat them. Yeah. Oh, ain't on the diet. And I regret that I didn't make it Healthy. out on that Healthy. Thanksgiving no, not a diet. dinner. Oh. My goodness. Yeah, it was good, yeah. though. Um, so, yeah, working on my writing. Getting myself grounded, getting a home, getting a partner. Are you thinking you ever have any kids? A dog. I want a lot of dogs. Dog. We had this conversation. Well, the, the other kid day. thing. Yeah. <laughs> the kid thing. Oh goodness. The kid thing. No. That's why you said you want a lot of dogs. I, just... I want a lot. Of, I love animals. I want some cows. I won't. I won't do anything with them, but love uh-huh. them. I don't want to eat them. Mm-hmm. Um. But uh. The ki- yeah, kids. So <laughs> I love being an auntie and I really want to be a better auntie. I don't live near my nieces or my nephews. They're, well, my nieces are two hours away. My nephews are in West Virginia. Um, and so I miss out on so much of what they're up to and they're growing and all that. And it makes me really sad. But um I've thought for a long time that maybe that was just supposed to be my role. Um, And it might. It might just be my role. But I've also, off and on for years, I've thought about my mom was a twin. And we had um, 22 sets of twins in my family. (laughs) What? Yeah, like they go way back. You know where she's going with this, right? So I thought, well, you know, I'll be 38 next month. That window's kind of closing. I mean, some people are like, oh, no, girl, you got it till 45. And I'm like, oh, no, nowadays, about all that. that. Nowadays, though, that's like, um, that's the hip thing to do. Uh, that's what I hear. It you is. know, 45 is the new 25 it or is. something. But anyway, <laughs> um, so maybe I got a few more years than I would <clears throat> expect, but I want to have a healthy pregnancy and, you know, if I do, but. And maybe get the vision, the the man first. It'd be yes, of course, <laughs> yes, of course. Um, yeah, that's got to happen. Like we need to like can we grab awesome a cup of coffee. That's, that's part of your vision board, though. I mean, not, a lot of people, you know, they run out ahead of it. You know what I mean? <laughs> so, well, and I'm just settle for any any yeah. old body. Oh, no. yeah. Put that on your list of goals. And <laughs> no, I won't do that. Um, I just, I don't know. I want it to be right, um, whatever that means. And they say sometimes you think you know exactly what you want, and then you don't always know. But um, <laughs> anyway. She, she's rolling. What, she what she's trying to say is she's rolling the <laughs> dice for twins. No. But, um, yeah, so that'd be pretty cool. Just knock it out in one shot, one yeah. and done. But then you get two. And what yeah. would be really cool is if I had a boy and a girl. Because then I just say, yeah, I got to have my son and my daughter. Problem but solved. No. I just went to my best friend's house up in D.C. We went to college together. We got really close, and she had two boy 
She had twins, two boys, and they're two and a half. I was up there in early November. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> they're so cute. They are so wild. And it's like whack-a-mole. You think you got one, and then you turn around, and the other one's like tearing up this corner of the house. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. This is a lot. It's a lot. But, yeah, I don't know. It's hard to tell. But... Hey, here's the dreaming, right? Here's the dreaming. <laughs> that was a really long so listen, Gary, answer. I know I've said that a lot tonight. We are going to have to wrap this up. Party's yeah, over? About, this yeah, is about 12 o'clock. I got, I got news for you. I got news for you. This is the, the longest, longest, podcast. longest podcast we've ever done. Um, mm-hmm. Oh, my. You know Not how, your record, Gary. <laughs> you know how long we've been Don't sitting make here? A bell. How long? Three hours and 15 minutes. Are you serious? Yeah, I mean, I'm a talker. That's a good job. But I didn't That's think awesome. I, I did not think I'd be able to talk in this microphone. I know she was. I was so nervous. Really nervous. So, yeah. Now yeah. to go back and listen to it, I don't know if when I'm going to have the three hours capacity to do that. Well, I mean, because I'm too like shy, I'll probably we'll make you. That's you know, why just, like, we'll make you. We we now we know that when you have coffee with Gary Ann, you better. Yeah. Plan for hours. Because yes. I mean, you just get in such deep conversations like this. It's I love to talk. I love to connect with people. I really do. Sorry, buddy. I hope and that you're good at it. Um, Caitlin's over there. Thank like, you. You're you good at it. You guys are all amazing, and I just want you to know what an honor this was. And I said to both of you, I don't think you have the right person this i don't really know what it is i have to say <laughs> but you proved tonight but i talked that for three had, hours and 15 minutes <laughs> yeah you proved tonight that we did have the right person yeah you proved it well so you are very kind and generous um but yeah. i admire each of you and i am so grateful to know each of you and and to be able to call you my friends and my colleagues and to be able to Work together, and we're look, honored to I have look you on forward the to I look forward to staying connected with each of you, and mm-hmm. really doing some great stuff out there. Mm-hmm. And That's what it's about. I look like, forward to resetting this conversation in six months or eight months to see where the Leech program goes and what's next, and how do we expand that to other counties, and yes. just all of those conversations. I look forward to doing that again, and just kind of like monitoring what's happening. And check with the in work you're doing on the twins on the vision board. On the twins, check yeah. in on the twins. See, you get the man. Get you the challenge twins. her. Yeah, you challenge her to find the man first, and then there you go, jump into the twins. <laughs> oh my goodness! So we got people dropping comments. Hey, they Tilly, probably are. Hey, what's up? <laughs> okay, yeah. Um, no, not if they're looking at this camera. I got, I got Billy. Billy in Oklahoma City. He wants wants your phone number. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Um, so listen, thank you guys. You said for, you like to travel. You said you like to travel, Oklahoma <laughs> yes. City. Thank you guys for tuning in this evening to this wonderful conversation. Um, real quick, I just wanted to dedicate. You got something? Saturday. Yeah, yeah, I got that after. Okay. I got that after. Um, I lost a very close friend on Friday night, the day after Thanksgiving. Um, just unexpectedly, mm. you know, on some confusing circumstances that like are hard to wrap my mind around. So um, in closing out the show tonight, I just want to dedicate the show to my best friend's memory, Jason Borum. I love you, dog. Mm. I will miss you. And um, I love you, Jen. And you guys are just 
so close to me and to my heart right now. So thank you guys for tuning in. Thank you. Big love. Big love, y'all. Love you guys. That's a wrap, Shine ladies on. and gentlemen. <laughs>